Why would the State Department say, well, you can't be in NATO? Because that would destroy the purpose of NATO. Because the purpose of NATO is to exist. It, that, this is why they say it's a self-licking ice cream cone. That's what people refer to NATO as? That's, that's what the Defense Department is. Oh. Right? Yeah. A self-licking ice cream cone. Something that exists to perpetuate its existence. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Human Reaction, your weekly source for independent commentary on cultural news and politics, where it's always our mission to arm you with the tools that you need to cut through media misdirection and resist the mononarrative. I'm here with my co-hosts, David Rand and Kyle Mack. David, how are you? Doing pretty good. I mean, especially feeling enlightened on Russian history because we watched 10,000 years of Russian history, so you don't have to. And it was glorious. We're going to be reacting to Putin's interview with Tucker Carlson. We kind of set it up last week. Now we're going to be breaking down what actually happened in the interview and some of the reactions to the reactions because that's the real story. Relatedly, the Senate had a big showdown this week on foreign aid package spending as well as like an immigration bill. And it's very strange that those two things are all in one spending bill right now. Uh, But we're going to be talking about that. The... Dark Brandon has returned, and that's that's really it. It's the return of Dark Dark Brandon, uh, but the vibe does not check uh, because he was also found not to have the cognitive capacity to be president, and everyone knew that, but no one's surprised, but everyone is surprised. I don't know. And then uh, <laughs> lastly, NPR wants you wanking it. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, yep. but before we get into that, <laughs> before we get into that, like, comment, subscribe, wherever you're listening to us, uh, Spotify, YouTube, Rumble, wherever it might be. And uh, we've passed a thousand subscribers on TikTok, Woo! might start doing some, we're allowed to do live streaming now, so we might do some of that. We experiment with that. Thank you, Liam, for jumping into our live stream and inviting people and being our first gift giver. We we made like a half a cent. On, Did we really? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Give us a rose, and, so. and we're rich. His brother and his friend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, we also got YouTube memberships are now, they're going to be available when this launches. So, uh, right. and super chats and things like that. So a lot more monetiza- monetization options are opening mm-hmm. up to us mm-hmm. as we're kind of cranking out more content for this podcast. Cranking it right um, now. And also our, <laughs> Joe's just wanking gonna, it over gonna be all this news right now. Um, <laughs> Pretty excited guys, gotta say. NPR is pumped. NPR is pumped for us. I'm glad the state affiliated news network is all about it. Um, and then our Substack is live and uh, we're posting. So exclusive content coming soon there as well. And thank you for everybody that's signed up. We've got a few signups on there. Yep. So anywhere you want to go to give us money, you can. Thank you. Because we've been doing this for at an expense for <laughs> for a year. <laughs> to be clear, we still are. <laughs> for sure. I mean, you know, if, if everyone on the Discord signs up on our Substack, we could be net positive pretty soon after that. True. Not by got- a lot, but we'd be making our rent. And we've got a couple of really cool sponsors coming on that I'm really excited yeah. to talk more about once those things are locked in. Lots of cool stuff on the horizon. We're doing a thing. We're staying consistent. It's paying off. And we appreciate each and every one of you for watching and listening and sharing and all the stuff to make it happen. Uh, without further ado, let's talk about 10,000 years of Russian history in 60 seconds. Yeah. So we all watched the interview, right? Absolutely. What did you guys think about it? And to be clear, we're talking about Tucker's interview with Vladimir Putin, Vladimir which Putin. aired just after we released our last episode. Yeah, literally like two hours after we were uh, yeah. <laughs> we recorded it. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, what were your what were your initial thoughts, Kyle? What well, do you think? Well, my initial thoughts are I love the meme the meme landscape that came out with it. Um, the memes were very juicy right now. I have pulled up here, uh, Mr. Putin. Why did you invade Ukraine? And uh, he's like, Well, four billion years ago, the Earth was in its cooling phase, <laughs> which this is an exaggeration of what happened, but. Tucker did open up with the Ukraine question and Putin decided to go into like 50 minutes of uh, history since the ninth century on the founding of Russia. Yes. (laughs) Um, Which I thought was really interesting because to your credit, Dave, it really blew wide open the time slice bias that we have in the Western media landscape. The piece that we're allowed to see or the, the narrative that we're fed is this started in February of 22 when Putin invaded, Mm -hmm. not even this started in 2014 or this started in 1991 or Mm -hmm. any of these other important landmark moments in this whole history. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you, you were calling it correctly the whole time since February of, of last year. And if you go like, well, it goes back to the 16th century, you know, you're like, wait a minute, you know, maybe this is more complicated than I thought. Maybe, maybe the borders that were drawn up, you know, after world war one or, in 1990 or at any given time aren't the right borders that is actually a more complicated story and and that kind of would undermine if that was broadly understood that that would kind of undermine the well we can just go in yeehaw cowboys and fix everything because there's a detailed and complex history back there yeah yeah i was really interested by um a lot of the conversation around when the ussr fell Hmm. and uh Putin came in to power and was interested in, you know, reestablishing friendly relations with the West that um, they, they pushed back on that. He, asked, wasn't, he asked Clinton to join NATO. Yeah. Right. Like that's a big deal. Yeah. And, but, but it always seemed like, and there was another instance, I think it was right after the USSR fell and maybe it was with, with Reagan, I guess at that point mm-hmm. where it, it was asked like, you know, can we be friendly? Can we start to like, you know, develop some some better relations here and trade and and all those sort of peaceful things and the answer was yes let me go talk to my people and then he went went and talked to his people and came back and was like actually uh we can't do that so like that was a that was a really interesting point to me like the what the figure had the president wants is not necessarily what gets done once he goes and talks to his quote-unquote people who are those people which is a theme that we strike on the show all the time. Like how much control does the president actually have versus the apparatus around him? Like Mm -hmm. I was talking about that, uh, with a lot, a lot of this information that Putin put forward in the interview are things that you would, uh, you would muster if you watch that Oliver Stone documentary that I mentioned last week, uh, which was like a four hour series on Putin's thinking around everything back in like the 2015 to 2017 era. It was a series of interviews there where he goes into the Biden stuff or sorry, sorry, the, uh, the Clinton stuff with uh, NATO, but also um, just kind of going into the dynamics that exist there of like, we wanted to like, this would be a revolutionary moment for history if we all came together and compromised and we don't have to have this like weird tick for tack element that exists between the east and the west we could all actually form together here but it was the west that was like nah 
no, we're not doing it. And and Clinton seemed to be interested in doing it. It was it was just the the bureaucracy and the apparatus around him that wasn't right. 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 It doesn't have to be that the Illuminati told Lincoln or Lincoln Clinton <laughs> no. It could have been his Secretary of State or his, you know Defense Secretary who said that's a terrible idea, President. Don't you know that they really want to? You know, we got reports saying that they actually are trying to position us so they can actually take advantage of us and stuff like that. You know, right. there's there's just and and and, and additionally to that. We shouldn't look at that with a tremendous amount of naivete and just say, well, Putin's obviously telling us the truth. Obviously, they really did want to be friends. Right. That said, it was us that pulled out of the START Treaty. Yeah. It was us, right? In order to contain Iran. Why are we at war with Iran? Who knows? Nobody knows. Right. Why? But because they are bad. You know, I mean, like there's no, we do know. There are discrete reasons for our relationships with Iran. But my point is, is that the average person, there's no clear reason why we would care about what Iran does on the other side of the planet. Right? Yeah. Except for that, we're the global hegemon and that that's the ambition of the State Department. Why would the State Department say, well, you can't be in NATO because that would destroy the purpose of NATO because the purpose of NATO is to exist. It, that, this is why they say it's a self-licking ice cream cone. That's what people refer to NATO as? That's, that's what the Defense Department is. Oh. Right? Yeah. A self-licking ice cream cone. Something that exists to perpetuate its existence. Sure. Like sociology majors. <laughs> <laughs> like most social scientists, to be honest. <laughs> right? Uh, sociology majors, you, you go to sociology school, you get a PhD in it, or you get a bachelor's and be like, there's no jobs in sociology, so I got to get a PhD. And then next thing you know, you're just teaching more sociology majors. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, I want to touch on one thing you said, though, about let's not be naive and, and just trust that everything that Putin says is true. And I think that's that's very fair. Right. We need to be, you know, cautious and objective, and but also look at like facts and, and history and what we do know and what we don't know. But I think there's a component of that that's like now the burden of of disproof, if you will, is on Western leaders to say, no, 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 he's lying about this. And then here's the receipts to prove mm-hmm. that well, this didn't actually go down the way he said it did. Well, analysts my my yeah. understanding is that this is the correct view of history. Like this isn't a new thing. It's just a lot of people didn't realize that this was the case. Like the whole Russia wanting to join NATO thing. Sure. Right? Well, we actually knew that Russia asked yeah. to join NATO. That, that was known. Yeah, it just wasn't known. broadly publicized, right? And why we decided not to also not well known or understood. This was all known beforehand. It just wasn't put on the platform of Tucker Carlson on, on scale, right? If you were watching Dave DeCamp or Scott Horton or any of those guys, you would know this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, there's something strange going on here too. The, the way people responded to it wasn't, oh, here's how he's wrong, right? There was some think pieces on that. Like, oh, he got this part wrong about his historical explanation or actually these, this is when Ukrainian identity separated in this way. But it's all stuff that happened in the last hundred years. Like no one's debating in 1600 that the Rus or the large group of pagan turning Christian groups that became Russia and Ukraine weren't all one Slavic people at one point, mm-hmm. right? With you know different fiefdoms and kingdoms and stuff like that that arose and fell and got conquered or whatever. That complexity, you know, I haven't seen really challenged, and none of the stuff post World War. Uh, post uh, fall of Soviet Union have I seen substantially challenged by anybody. But what you get is, what was it? The Wall Street Journal editorial member, like one of the main guys on the editorial board, just put out, Tucker Carlson put out two hours of unchallenged uh, Kremlin propaganda. Well, challenge it then. It was three paragraphs (laughs) of him complaining about the interview and then not actually challenging any of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it was Tucker Carlson's job, he says, to challenge it and basically say, no, this is why you're wrong about the 16th century. 
I mean, or, or, you know, about Clinton and whatever. Like, well, what was he supposed to say? Yeah. Oh, no, that conversation you have with Clinton didn't happen that way. I mean, who, are you, who are reporters going to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, my, my opinion is that Tucker did a very good job. I think that there's way more to be gained from allowing Putin to talk in long form than rather than just doing the try to beat him up on point after point after point like because yeah. that's what that's what a normal any of these mainstream journalists would have done is like they would come forward with their talking points which are very american propagandized right and it's very much not understanding where he's coming from on his side very zero empathy for actually the russian side of this argument yeah. and would just be like why did you poison that person that you may or may not have poisoned? Right. Yeah. Like, like it, it would have right, just been right. stuff like that, yeah. which would not be useful or fruitful for any dialogue for actual right. diplomacy. But he did ask really good questions. Mm-hmm. Like when he asked who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, that's exactly that's mm-hmm. one of the most relevant questions. And of course, Putin's answer was hilarious. Who blew up Nord Stream? <laughs> you for sure. I was busy that day. <laughs> Nate, it, do you have, do you have, uh, I did not blow up Nord Stream. Uh, thank you, though. You personally may have an alibi, but the CIA has no such alibi. Did you have evidence that NATO or the CIA did it? You know, I won't get into details, but people always say in such cases, Look for someone who is interested. But I'm confused. I mean, that's the biggest act of industrial terrorism ever. And it's the largest emission of CO2 in in history. Okay, so if you had evidence, and presumably given your security services, your intel services, you would, that NATO, the US, CIA, the West did this, why wouldn't you present it and win a propaganda victory? (laughs) In the war of propaganda, it is very difficult to defeat the United States because the United States controls all the world's media and many European media. The ultimate beneficiary of the biggest European media are American financial institutions. Don't you know that? So it is possible to get involved in this work, but it is cost prohibitive, so to speak. We can simply shine the spotlight on our sources of information and we will not achieve results. I, I love that. It's it's too costly to compete with American propaganda. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is exactly what you would say if you didn't have the information, but we wanted to suggest that your narrative was true. Yeah. Yeah. That said, I, the find, Tucker, I find that to just be a hilarious yeah, response. <laughs> the Tucker face when he's listening is so Tucker face. Like yeah. that, that oh, yeah. like, oh, I, can't, I can't replicate it, but <laughs> yeah. Just so. so oh, uh, it reminds me of a Babylon B headline. It was like, husband uh, puts on Tucker face mask when listening to his wife talk. Like, <laughs> <laughs> super good. I, I found it interesting, actually, sort of related to this. Putin made a comment that uh, uh, talking about the CIA, uh, where he said, like, which which you Tucker wanted to join at one point, which is public. It, did yeah. he was he trying to become a CIA? I, I didn't know that. Yeah, but he was trying was to become part of a, one of his podcast interviews. He mentioned that he like tried to try it out for the CIA after college or something like that. Well, and they it, didn't it, take him. Tucker's like family is is very like Washington D.C. state bureaucracy. CIA type of stuff like that. That's where his background is, isn't is growing up in those elite functions and things like that. So it's, it's not that kind of surprising. He's just, he's just one of the few people that is kind of rebelling against it. Right. Allegedly, um, allegedly, unless he's a psyop. How can we be sure right? he's not a psyop? Um, he's that's he, the nature of psyops is you can't be sure. <laughs> that's part of the point is to make you not shit. sure about everything. Yeah. Like, like this is public information. Um, so if but, you can't be sure about anything, how can you be sure of anything? 
what you have to engage in good faith with what you do and don't know. Like that's very clear. And okay. so if you, and then you could, you don't have to hold everything in a binary choice of absolutely true and absolutely false. Right? Yeah. And so some of that might be a little bit of a power play from Putin. It's just been like, uh, you know, I, I, we've done our research on you too. Right. Um, sure. doing that type of stuff, but also it could be a, a sense of familiarity because, uh, Putin was ex-KGB. He resigned because he didn't like what was going on with the KGB, allegedly. That's that, that's the reason why he resigned from the KGB. You know, people in America like to do the whole once a KGB, always a KGB kind of a thing, or once a CIA, always a CIA. But, well, true. but Putin re- did resign before he entered politics um, because of he didn't like the kind of apparatus that the KGB had become mm-hmm. in the post-Soviet era, right? Um, I think that once KGB, always KGB thing, was it Hillary Clinton or was it... Um the uh, so secretary of defense secretary of state for bush um forgetting her name right now condoleezza rice condoleezza rice i think that was one of her quotes yeah, yeah. it's exactly that's exactly but that's always the framing right like he's actually you can't trust him because of that and don't get me wrong you shouldn't trust any government ever yeah that's the nature of government but but you should try to find the truth with the best arguments what are the best arguments and when you look at the facts of the arguments of our relationship with russia that led up to the war in Ukraine. I don't see how you play a story of this is an un- unexpected, out of nowhere act of empire conquering aggression from Russia. Just absolutely silly. Uh, another interesting area that I, I really liked was uh, Putin talking about the weaponization of the dollar uh, when it comes to foreign policy and talking about how it's one of the US and the West. It's one of the biggest mistakes that we've made. Um, so let's play that clip the U.S. dollar, which has kind of united the world in a lot of ways, maybe not to your advantage, but certainly to ours. Is that going away as the reserve currency, the, the, common, the universally accepted currency? How have sanctions, do you think, changed the dollar's place in the world? You know, to use the dollar as a tool of foreign policy struggle is one of the biggest strategic mistakes made by the U.S. political leadership. The dollar is the cornerstone of the United States power, but they won't stop printing. What does the debt of $33 trillion tell us about? As soon as the political leadership decided to use the US dollar as a tool of political struggle, a blow was dealt to this American power. I would not like to use any strong language, but it is a stupid thing to do and a grave mistake. Look at what is going on in the world. Even the United States allies are now downsizing their dollar reserves, seeing this everyone starts looking for ways to protect themselves. But the fact that the United States applies restrictive measures to certain countries, such as placing restrictions on transactions, freezing assets, etc., causes grave concern and sends a signal to the whole world. Do you even realize what is going on or not? Does anyone in the United States realize this? What are you doing? You are cutting yourself off. All experts say this. Ask any intelligent and thinking person in the United States what the dollar means for the U.S. You're killing it with your own hands. And this is absolutely accurate, uh, in a sense. It's a good. It's a read that a lot of people would agree with, and we've discussed on our show quite a bit. Zero Hedge actually had a debate about this very thing with the premise of by 2030, the U.S. will no longer be the majority world reserve currency. And that seems to be a solid case. In 2008, about 70% of all world currency reserves were in U.S. dollars. Today, it's about 58%. If you keep tracking that out, by 2030, we're probably going to be under 50%. Wow. Now, it doesn't mean we don't we lose. It doesn't mean it goes 50%, 50, 49, zero, right? Mm-hmm. It probably <laughs> trickles down and then stabilizes in another place, depending upon a lot of variables. Um, and there's two, there's two other very good experts on the other side of it at the Hero, Zero Hedge debate. 
but uh, who are making decent arguments. This was um, Rickards and the other guy versus Brent Johnson and the other guy. <laughs> Robert P. Murphy was yes. one of the other guys. And, yes. the only guys and Murphy's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. Murphy. Robert P. Murphy is the best. Um, so it's, it's a great case, and it's, it's very interesting, right? Because from a strategic point, it's hard. I mean, getting world reserve currency gives you so much ability and economic prosperity you couldn't otherwise do, and ability to float you know, credit. But despite that, we just have no fiscal discipline, right? We've so taken for that for granted. We've bankrupted ourselves. We're spending almost as much on payment on the interest of the debt right now as we are on defense. I think it's more now. Yeah, I've seen two, both measures. I, I think it it's depends on what you count as a liability, yeah. right? If you're paying, if you count Social Security payments on top of that, it's definitely more, mm. right? Because Social Security payments is a huge liability, right? Yeah. It's a claim on future liabilities. Um, and the growth of that alone, once you conclude that liability, it's in the it's hundreds of trillions of dollars. Yeah. Um, but if you just go on the national debt, it's also a huge problem. And the higher the interest rate, the more the greater the payments. With the pressure of increasing inflation and all the pressures of inflation uh, that we've seen, we've had to increase interest rates. We might have to increase them again. Granted, we keep spending like this, right? So yeah. it's a great, it's a it's a very uh, it's a very concerning question that Americans probably don't talk about enough. And the fact that Putin's aware of it, you know, obviously demonstrates that this isn't you know, something that only we should be thinking about or only like global actors. Well, yeah, I mean, very clearly he's thinking about it being a member of BRICS and positioning yep. that trade block as the primary competitor to the dollar at this point, you know? Which is interesting because like BRICS is full of our allies too, like India and Brazil. Right. Uh, but those those very same people, if you're India and Brazil and you're like, I want to be able to sometimes say no to American foreign policy, right? While wanting to transact with Americans and you're an American and your government is saying, I don't care what your foreign policy is. We're going to use the dollars that you transact in to get our way around the world. That's going to make you poor. Yeah. So it's going to make them. us poorer. Yes, that that yes. was actually, and I can't remember if it was in this Tucker interview or if it was in another interview that I saw with Putin, is I remember Putin saying that the primary reason why uh, why the U.S. didn't want Russia to join NATO was because they weren't going to, Russia can actually be a no vote against the u.s's power because they have enough like industrial power and enough power in, in their own right mm. unlike all of these european countries which kind of have to cuck out to the united states they ha they have to act as vassals to the empire where russia doesn't necessarily have to be in that position they just wanted to be diplomatic yeah right? mm -hmm. uh, additionally yeah could you imagine if you had joined nato and then you have all these pipelines going into germany and then there was yeah. a disagreement with nato and he's like nah we're not going to do that how that would split NATO apart, right? right? And you would have Finland and Norway and Germany all going with Russia and then England and France and Spain going with us, you know? Which that's the geopolitical reasons right there for the for the people around Clinton being like, nah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because because <laughs> they want to maintain the hegemony of the empire, right? Sure. And for the last century, the United States has been the empire. Well, right. And it's important to differentiate that, right? There is no vision for peace. Mm -hmm. And people say, well, it's a dangerous and nasty world. And therefore, we need to be the global hegemon while their aim is not peace. Yeah. Right? Their aim is to make sure the world stays nasty. It's like a self-fulfilling prof prophecy problem. It uh, may not be their aim to ensure that the world stays that way, but the, the actions that, that we are taking have shown evidence of leaving the world just as bad or worse than, than you know, it was before we started given war, right? right? I mean, you can point to all sorts of things that uh, the neocons argue for why our hegemony has been so great. And there are good things that have happened when it comes to globalization, international trade, things like that. 
That said, there's also downsides. And one of those downsides has been a slaughter in South America and across the Middle East that have tremendous blowback going on till today. And we're paying those consequences today and then we're just blaming other countries rather than blaming ourselves. So yeah, I mean, everything happens, but it all happens with a trade-off and a cost. Yeah. And one of those trade-offs and costs is, has been, we ref- we're now spinning ourselves into oblivion, having fights on how much we should be spending to fight a proxy war with Ukraine in Ukraine against Russia because we couldn't let them into NATO and just encourage actual peace and dialogue and cooperation and international, you know, uh, what, what would you call it? Diplomacy. Yeah. Speaking of that, um, in this interview, Putin talks about the situation that happened at the peace talks in Istanbul mm. where Boris Johnson came over and basically at the 11th hour when the deal was almost struck said, no, we're not going to do this. And we reported on that when it had like, a, yeah. like when it, when it got leaked Yes. And everyone said, and the, the Israeli guy walked by like, oh, actually, that didn't really happen. I got misquoted and all that kind of stuff. This, I mean, if if that's another data point that it might be true, right? Is that mean it was true? Because Putin, he could be lying. He could be, he could have seen the same news report we saw and then repeating it. Sure. The, the guy who originally pointed that out, the Israeli official who pointed that out, had walked it back afterwards. But I assume, I assume he walked it back because of international pressure because they don't yeah, want to be sure. seen spiking peace talks. Right. When oh, they yeah. think they're going to win the war. Right. This was before the summer offensive when they thought they were going to be able to win the war, which yeah. that's a very important thing right there, too, is Russia's doing pretty good. Like economically speaking, I remember when the when the war because because that, that was always the premise, right, is like Russia's not going to be able to keep this thing up because they're just not going to be able to withstand the pressure, blah, blah, blah. We're going to outfund it and all this stuff. Right. The ruble crashed for like a week a ton when the initial war came up rubles higher than it's ever been right now oh, right is <laughs> right. the economy bigger than it was before the yeah. sanctions went I, place? I think it just i think it just opened up they opened up more industrial capacity because they realized that they can't rely on like the the swift monetary system and like all these things right because like uh putin said they got cut off from uh from a lot of international trade when all this stuff happened because uh swift they got banned from swift like you have Amer- you have russian companies that just cannot interact with the western part of the world anymore because of uh the u.s just putting that pressure on them and they're just like okay it well, just throws them more into the BRICS category now and they they're, they're just working more with china and exactly and the other interesting part of that too is like you have germany which he mentions in this interview, like they have a pipeline that's still operational that could send natural gas to Germany. But meanwhile, Germany is just like struggling under the weight of paying the energy costs that they're paying, making them very, very uncompetitive on global stage. And yet, you know, they're, they're under pressure from the U S ostensibly to not reopen that because they don't want to benefit Russia, but they're doing so to their very own detriment, Mm -hmm. like their national detriment, but to the benefit of this, you know, higher, you know, global order, if you will which I think is very interesting. But I, I, I believe, uh, I believe last winter they had like a drastic increase in deaths by cold in Germany. Yeah. Mm. No, I haven't seen, I heard that. I, I, I remember but I, I haven't seen that actually bear out anywhere. I maybe. thought I saw that. Mm. I, I believe last winter, maybe I'm not sure. Interesting. I was very interested to hear Putin say, speaking of China as well, that China's stance is not aggressive, not inherently aggressive. They're, they're more, um, you know, defensive in nature and looking for compromise. That's so contrary to the narrative that we hear in the West regarding 
Xi Jinping and everything that's going on around Taiwan, which, which goes into our recent interview with Joseph Solis Molin, right, where they have their own problems that they have to worry about. Like they're already a massive geographical force. They have all these resources already and Russia's the same way. But like you have with Russia, they're like, oh, next is going to be Poland. But it's like there's nothing strategic of importance in Poland for Russia to worry about. They have everything they need. Right. The, the important <clears throat> thing right now for Russia is Crimea. Like like that is their access to the Black Sea. They need that right now. Right. And we're trying to push them out of that so like that's all their real concern is right now and china's the same way like they have plenty of stuff that they're not necessarily worried about uh expanding across the globe right <laughs> right, right. It's, it's very strange like it the discord leaks for example suggested that russia didn't actually have the military capability to invade poland and the rest of eastern europe right so while the state department's putting out the stuff saying he's the new hitler he's going to conquer all of europe the internal documents suggest that that's not true so it was, it was, it's, it's always been just like an absurd lie. It's all propaganda, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, another area here, um, another clip from the interview itself, and this kind of goes for uh, fighting back against the people that are like, oh, Tucker didn't challenge Putin at all. Uh, Tucker did ask Putin to release a jailed Wall Street Journal uh, journalist, uh, Evan Gerskovich. So uh, let's play that clip right here. I just got to ask you one last question, and that's about Evan Gershkovitz, who's the Wall Street Journal reporter. He's 32, and he's been in prison for almost a year. And I just want to ask you directly if, as a sign of your decency, you would be willing to release him to us and we'll bring him back to the United States. We have done so many gestures of goodwill out of decency that I think we have run out of them. We have never seen anyone reciprocate to us in a similar manner. However, in theory, we can say that we do not rule out that we can do that if our partners take reciprocal steps. What makes this difference is the guy's obviously not a spy. He's a kid. And maybe he was breaking your law in some way, but he's not a super spy. And everybody knows that. And he's being held hostage in exchange, which is true. With respect, it's true. And everyone knows it's true. So maybe he's in a different category. Maybe it's not fair to ask for you know somebody else in exchange for letting him out. Maybe it degrades Russia to do that. He was receiving classified confidential information, and he did it covertly. I mean, this is a 32-year-old. He committed something different. He's not just a journalist. I reiterate, he's a journalist who was secretly getting confidential information. I do not rule out that the person you refer to, Mr. Gershkovitz, may return to his motherland. By the end of the day, it does not make any sense to keep him in prison in Russia. I hope you let him out. Yeah, that was really bold, uh, I thought, for him to just asked that point Blake there were a few moments where I was like oh I can't believe he just asked him that uh, but that was certainly and he certainly, pressed him on it too he didn't just ask it and just let the first question go like he pushed back like yeah. no this is a journalist yeah. and and Tucker was also kind of like he's obviously not a secret like a super spy or anything like, <laughs> like he like he's using those types of that said things right if you were the CIA wouldn't you make your spy a journalist I mean, come on. I don't know. I don't know enough about the Evan Gerskovich story. Um, yeah. It, that said, it also shows you that there's no press freedom in Russia. True. Because if that was a journalist in America, we could not incarcerate them. Right. No, it was Julian Assange. But yeah. they're not. A, they're not. A, well, but that's different. <laughs> uh, we just put. We just put things under the, the State Department. Act, we, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it uh, supposedly you. You wouldn't be able to do that. Like. In theory, you're not wrong. Yeah. The question is whether or not he's an actual journalist or not. And he doesn't actually write for a newspaper, but he does leak the stuff online. Publisher. Yeah. Yeah. That's the question. 
Interesting. Yeah. And yeah, not an American, but neither was this person. So like, how do you treat foreign journalists? And, is another and, interesting and, question. And then you, we have ways of going around it. We philosophy. have, we have the FBI going to Twitter to, to block the New York post, for right, instance. Right. That's what we do. We're sophisticated. <laughs> We're sophisticated our with our censorship. <laughs> is super sophisticated. I cannot find anything on German winter deaths. Mm, uh, ignore what I said then. I found something. That might've been, tw- might been Twitter info. Fake yeah. news. Fake, Fake news. news. Yeah. We need it. We need that as a yeah, we do. thing. Yeah, we do. If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. You're absolutely right, Kyle. You know, every, I think Tucker Carlson said on one of his after kind of reactions to it was that, you know, all governments kill people and all leaders are terrible you know, have to make terrible decisions. Yeah, he says, and, that's why I would never want to be one. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and so I'm not, and that, that shouldn't justify it. And we should have more clarity about that. We should be able to say, no, the state is an apparatus of coercion and, you know, terribleness and propaganda. And they repress, you know, Julian Assange and, you know, people like that. Um, those are terrible things. And we should have an equal outrage to that as well as Putin. And anyone who has not covered, you know, is talking about the Wall Street Journal reporter, but not talking about Julian Assange. That's the real crime. Or Gonzalo Lira. Or Gonzalo you know, Good point. Right? I mean... Whoop. Good point. It happens everywhere, yeah. clearly. At least Julian Assange is famous, right? And yeah. has attention. Gonzalo Lira, if it wasn't for, you know, a niche on the internet, had no but, idea. Yeah. But due to... Thank, thanks to Elon Musk, he gives him a massive signal boost. Yeah. Because Elon would comment on the stuff after Gonzalo Lira said... I'm going to be trying to cross the Ukrainian border. And I, if you don't hear back from me, it's because I probably wound up in jail, mm-hmm. which he did wind up in jail. And then he ended up getting killed. Worst, and Elon signal boosted that. Yeah. A work camp. I like <laughs> which, which, just a jail. Which is interesting because Slave camps. that was actually an, a massive undertone of this uh, interview with Putin was talking about, he was really, really gung ho about talking about the Nazi problem in Eastern Europe um, and, yes. and the denazification of it. That's something that we didn't really put in our notes here, we, but that was something which that was is a major problem. Propaganda, right? Denazification, because that's not really their goal, right? Their goal is denatoification, right? But it's good marketing. It is good marketing, just like any, just like any government is trying to do marketing, right? Uh, and it's definitely known that there are Ukrainian Nazis, and there is a problem with that. If you look at the New York, New York Times and their coverage of it, they have coverage saying how it's such a big problem that so many of the people in Ukraine that are supposedly good guys are Nazis. That does indicate that there are Nazis, right, in this situation. It's just absolutely absurd that we have to even debate that at this point. Yeah. Um, What I want to move on to is actually where I think a lot of there's valuable information and wisdom on this was Tucker, after the Putin interview, uh, did a kind of an interview in front of the summit in Dubai. um, And he was asked a lot of very interesting questions in the summit, but he was at, and this kind of goes into... uh, the what we were just talking about with jailing of journalists and kind of stifling information right here is he starts uh with the interview talking about why he interviewed putin now and how he's been trying to do this for three years so let's uh jump into that the i'll I'll start in reverse order why now well i've been trying for three years to do this interview um the u.s government prevented me from doing it 
by spying on my text messages and leaking them to the New York Times. And that spooked the Russian government into canceling the interview. So I've been trying to do this, but my country's intel services were working against me illegally, and that enraged me because I'm an American citizen. I'm 54, I pay my taxes, I obey the law. And there was no expectation in the America that I grew up in that my government and its intel services, NSA and CIA, which were always outwardly focused on our foreign enemies, would be turned inward against American citizens. And I'm shocked by that, and I'm infuriated by that. And so once I discovered that that was happening, and I confirmed it was happening, and they admitted that they did it, then I was totally determined, monomaniacally dedicated to doing this interview, not simply because I want to know uh, what Vladimir Putin is like and what he thinks about a war that is resetting the world and really gravely damaging my country's economy, but also because they told me I couldn't on the basis of illegitimate means um, and for no really clearly stated justification. And I thought that can't stand. I don't, I wanna live in a free country. I was born in one. And I'm gonna do whatever small thing I can do to maintain um, you know, the society that I, 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 okay. I, so I love. You are- there are those tiny hands for you, Bennett. Dude, it, it, I mean, it is because he's bigger, but it was, <laughs> it's really distracting. <laughs> uh, for, for the audience, Bennett was commenting on how small this guy's hands are. <laughs> like, he was really concerned about it. Like, what's wrong with this guy's hands? <laughs> he took some hand-shrinking potion. It's a medical condition. <laughs> It's more the the other view that it was more distracting. But anyways. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's also the tie. What's going on with that guy's tie and the pant line there? Like, <laughs> we, don't, we, don't have to, we don't have to go into a Deeb's tie. <laughs> I love how you're assuming the fashionista crown for me right now. This is great. On men's fashion, I'm an expert. Well, well, well Nikki Haley's not here, Joe. So. Yeah, yeah. There's great. no women on screen, Joe. There's no yeah. one for you to comment on. <laughs> No, that's a great point. And I think I think the the development of the revelation that the intelligence agencies were spying on Tucker Carlson, a member of the news media, is not surprising if you've been tracking what's happened with the NSA and the CIA and Intel boys since pretty much Snowden, right? We know this going way back, like 2012. There was stuff about uh, cables from news uh, outlets getting intercepted and then, you know, being used by intelligence agencies and things like that going overseas for a very long time. There's been multiple lawsuits. This is a huge story. Something that most of the American public is not engaged in, and that's sad. Nobody really runs on how terrible our intelligence agencies are, right? Uh, And how violating of our rights they are. There are a few people, and those are the good guys, but it isn't broadly understood or well, uh, like, or well, that's funny, <laughs> or, or very well under, uh, like, di- dialogued in and on a mass scale. Um, and exactly, well, a good example of that is this week, this week, actually this morning, news broke from Public and Racket on Substack. This is our guys, uh, Mike Ta- Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger uh, broke a story based upon anonymous reporting. So anonymous sources, uh, sources that say that the CIA asked the five I nations who spy on the Trump administration when they were running in 2016, that the Obama administration asked that to happen. Brand new details about how Obama's CIA targeted Trump and started the entire Russia hoax. For years, we were told that tips from an Australian diplomat tipped off the FBI after a random conversation with Papadopoulos a no-name 20-something? 
But according to new reporting by Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi, the whole thing was a CIA setup. Former CIA director John Brennan identified 26 Trump associates to be targeted by the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance. And then those interactions were the targets and were targeted by the FBI as suspicious. And that's how the FBI launched the Russia collusion hoax. The details of this entire operation have been stored in a top secret binder in a secret room in Washington. Trump ordered the whole thing declassified. And now the rumor is that the binder might be missing. Going to me now, one of the reporters who broke the story, Michael Schellenberger. I don't want to stop Michael there, but you should definitely check out that. We'll put it in the show notes because it's a great interview with Michael. And I don't, I'm not trying to steal this stuff from him, but I do think it's really important to highlight that. And we do follow them on Substack. And you should follow us on Substack because we, we, we restack their stuff all the time. But you got to be subscriber, subscribers. Michael Schellenberger has been, and Matt Taibbi both, have been quintessential in the last couple of years. Just in the stories that they've been breaking. Like, like, these are the Twitter files, guys. These yeah. are the same people, right? Yeah. Like, they're excellent they're, they're doing such good work what's funny is because he's not even a journalist he's a climate scientist but anyways uh, so <laughs> the uh so a big thing here so i, I want to kind of make point like break down the plan here so the Obama administration perhaps himself or someone within the administration goes to the five eyes and we've covered the five eyes before yeah and what the five eyes is is it's an uh an agreement between america canada uk australia new zealand, new zealand? Is, that, is that what yeah. it is those yeah. five yeah. um where we can't spy on our own people but we'll allow you to spy on our own people well, that, <laughs> that's, that's basically it. that's what this story turned out to be and that's not what it's supposed to be but that's a good way to well, that, that's that's what came out with the edward snowden revelations right. way back in the day right. is, is, is that they that, were doing that, that this is what this before is. then it was just like we're going to work together to stop al-qaeda or whatever we're going to share intel uh and you say we're going to share intel it's going to be about the russians right during the cold war we're going to share intel it's going to be about you know saddam hussein and how terrible it is with the kurds and then it's like, oh, everyone understands and supports that. And then it's actually, actually, we're going to show our intelligence as we spy on each other's citizens to give to their intelligence agencies in that country because they're not allowed to. So you're, it's illegal after the church commission made it absolutely clear. It was implied clear before, but they made it absolutely code clear that CIA can't spy on American citizens. These Americans so have do? this pesky Fourth Amendment that doesn't <laughs> allow us to do it. So, <laughs> so what do you do? You go to Australia and you say, Australia, please spy on American citizens. And then they do so. And then they report to the CIA what, what, they, what they find. So first step, here's the plan. And I'll break it down. Because I think Jesse Waters did a good job like summarizing it. But here's, the, here, here's, a, here's just another way to say it. First, ID Trump people. Second, have agents run, uh, reach out. That's what they mean by bump. Like these agents from other countries reach out to that person and like have communique. Monitor the reaction with the other country, right? Whether it was Britain or New Zealand or whatever. And then, kind of regardless of its appropriate response or not, if it's like, hey, don't email me or whatever, there's been an interaction with the foreign agent. So then you report it to the FBI as potential Russian collusion. That's, mm. the, that's, that's the argument of something here. If mm. I understand the Taibbi article right. Yeah, I mean. Very interesting stuff. It, it's, yeah. it's one of those things where we all knew it. We've, hmm. we've all talked about it in the past and we just got more data points that suggest it, right? Right. So what's the significance here? I mean, is anything going to change as a result of this coming out? Well, I mean, you do have like Section 702 FISA court um, reform is a thing that's debated every single year. 
And the more we build the the the, the story, the more we can uh, establish the narrative amongst the population imagination of the, of the American people that there's a problem in the intelligences that needs to be addressed. Reform needs to be that. The, the better we do. Yeah. Right. Vivek went from no nobody to being eight percent in Iowa. Eight percent in Iowa has a massive saying, podcast following. Yeah, by saying. <laughs> We need to reform the intelligence agencies and being having a realistic and engaged view there as one of the differentiating factors between him and all the other candidates, right? So if you can get popular, if you can make money talking about it, we can get real reform. Yeah, right? it can't happen. It's happened yeah. before, right? It was less regulated. It was even less regular before the Church Commission, right? 1950s and 60s, you got the CIA running around doing MK Ultra experiments on people, right? They might still be doing that. Who knows? But I'm just saying. No, they, they, they cut the programs, Dave. <laughs> T-Swift, they cut yeah. the programs. That's why she's in a bathtub in uh, diamonds, you know. <laughs> it's diamond he, programming. That's different. <laughs> it's just the highest tier. Know. Okay, so anyways. I don't know. Uh, you're going to get us censored on YouTube with that sort of talk. Hey, we're monetized now. We now have yeah. to obey all oh. the rules. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, we got to run our Pfizer ad now. This is run the Pfizer ad. And here's <laughs> Travis Kelsey. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just Bennett with a bandaid on his arm. Bennett got a haircut. Oh, he's making fun of us like looking Travis. like Travis. Catch yeah. Bennett on our, on our TikTok lives where he was on with me and you guys could all see what Bennett looks like. That's why you got to get on TikTok. Yeah. Get on, you know. get on TikTok. Give China all your data. Uh, just to see what Bennett looks like. That's that's the sell, sales pitch for that. All right. Anything, anything else on, on the Russia thing? <laughs> it's it's one of those things where I, I think it just it helps emphasize the point that Tucker was making mm-hmm. of just how deeply corrupt all of these intelligence agencies are. So like they were trying to stop him for three years from doing this interview. We have them doing everything with the Twitter files. We have them spying on the Trump administration. And remember before Trump got into office, he's like the Obama administration was spying on me and everybody's ah, that wacky conspiracy theory, you know, like, and it's like, no, they were, they were doing that. (laughs) Right. Right. I think if, if anything comes of this, it should be just to reiterate one more time that it is time to stop looking at other countries like Russia or wherever that might not be allies of the West as these propagandist nations that all they do is lie and all they, they're evil, et cetera, without turning the same eye to your own government and your own, you know, clandestine intelligence services and applying the same scrutiny. There, there was another clip from Tucker at the, um, world government summit in Dubai, where he was talking about how going to Moscow kind of radicalized him on realizing how degraded American kind of culture in our cities have become versus a lot of these other cities that are becoming more prosperous uh, overseas, particularly not in Europe, but like places like Russia and like Dubai and things like that. Um, I think that this would start spark a interesting conversation between all of us. Hmm. So let's uh, go into Tucker again here. That what was radicalizing, very shocking and very disturbing for me was the city of Moscow, where I'd never been, the biggest city in Europe, 13 million people. And it is so much nicer than any city in my country. I had no idea. My father spent a lot of time there in the 80s when he worked for the US government and barely had electricity. And now it is so much cleaner and safer and prettier aesthetically its architecture, its food, its service, than any country, city in the United States that you have to, and this is not ideological, how did that happen? How did that happen? And at a certain point, I don't think the average person cares as much about abstractions as about the concrete reality of his life. 
And if you can't use your subway, for example, as many people are afraid to in New York City because it's too dangerous, you have to sort of wonder, like, isn't that the ultimate measure of leadership? And that's true, by the way, it's radicalizing for an American to go to Moscow, I didn't know that, I've learned it this week, to <laughs> Singapore, to Tokyo, to Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Because these cities, no matter how we're told they're run and on what principles they're run, are wonderful places to live. That don't have rampant inflation, where you're not gonna get raped. Sir, excuse and so, me. What is that? Excuse me, are you anti-American model? No, I am the most pro-American. So I'm 54, I was I born in 1969. I grew up in a country that had cities like Moscow sarcastic. and Abu, Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Singapore and Tokyo, and we no longer have them. And what I have discovered is that's a voluntary choice. As inflation is, as you heard in that fascinating last panel, inflation is the product of choices made mostly by the central bank, not exclusively, but by policymakers. Crime, same, you don't have to have crime, actually. If you don't put, my children don't smoke marijuana at the breakfast table. Why? Because I won't allow them. It's very simple, it's a short conversation. No. And you can run your country the same way. We're not gonna put up with that, so don't do it. And people understand that. Filth, graffiti, Paris, one of my favorite cities, New York, one of my favorite cities, are filthy. And part of the reason they're filthy is because people spray paint obscenities on buildings and no one cleans it up. So that encourages more people to do the same. And our policymakers, for some reason, don't notice this. London, another one of my favorite cities. You see English girls begging for drugs on the sidewalk. And I thought to myself, if I'm Boris Johnson, who briefly and very badly ran that country, I would ask myself, like, wait a second, my countrymen are begging for drugs on the street. Maybe I should do something about that. But no, he'll show up and give some speech about Ukraine and how we need to send, you know, more cluster bombs to the brave no, Ukrainians. No, you, what do you do? Yeah, that's everything there. What do you guys think about that rant? In Boris Johnson's defense, the woman who did it after was much shorter. <laughs> <laughs> quite true, quite true. Yeah, that, that is, I forgot about that. She had like a solid 48 hours something or something, right? crazy, yeah. <laughs> it was less than a week, as this yeah. what I recall. Um, I, I, think, I think it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a valid critique. I've never been to Moscow, so I don't know. Have you seen pictures uh, of like their metro stations? No, but I'm sure that those could be, you know, those can be photoshopped and you can, you know, you can, there are ways to lie through imagery and, and video, right? So I, I haven't seen it with my own eyes, so I don't know, no, but I, we, we have spoken about this relatively at length and, you know, per, fairly recent episodes about how it was that GTA well, episode when yeah, we got into it. Well, Western cities are, are degrading, you know, and, and are people going to eventually get to a point where they're like, well, I'm tired of living this way. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I'd have to do a little bit more systematic study. I never really thought about it. But if you compare homicide per city, right? If you compare London, uh, in 2021, the number of homicides in London was 127. If you compare that to New York, 386. Versus all of Russia is 7,200. I haven't compared Moscow. Let me compare Moscow. Well, you may want to do like per capita as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Because yeah. Russia only has 150 Moscow million has people. Moscow has 12 million in right. total, I believe. Um, but this is something that, like, I, I have a... I, per I, capita, it's... Uh, the homicide rate at per capita is 4.9. Uh, in Russia? Yeah, in Russia, yeah. Gotcha. Versus the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Perhaps per 100,000. What, what's the what's the U.S. homicide rate per capita? I'm going as fast as I can. Go quicker! <laughs> so, um, Look it up, Jamie. It, and that's, that's one of the things I went by city was because when you do U.S., the size and, like, the diversity there, right? Like, 
obviously the homicide rate in Denver is not like what it is in Chicago. Right. Um, so it's not, no, but we do have concentration in urban areas. And I mean, that's, I think that's what Chicago is a war zone. So (laughs) it is, it is 6.3 in 2022. So 6.3 to Mm 4.9. So So not substantially. So so this is population adjusted though. Interesting. I mean, like in, in like, that's just saying that, there isn't, there's nothing, there's not, it isn't just anecdotal what he's talking about there. What, what Tucker's car, talking about there is that the crime problem, that the homelessness problem, that the graffiti and public um, unintended or secondary effects of the policies that we have have resulted in real problems in American cities that aren't being addressed and we don't see real movement on it. And that's a reasonable criticism, I think. Yeah. Well, and so I, I think I have an interesting perspective on this because of my time in crypto. I end up talking basically on the daily with people all around the globe. Like I'm in chats with people and I hear people from Singapore, from Dubai, um, Malaysia, Tokyo. Like I, I, I talk with people and the way that I feel when I talk to these people is when, when they're talking about where they live, it is like these places are the up and coming places right now. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they actually, they'll talk about how they visit America and they're, and they are shocked how bad it is <laughs> mm-hmm. like and in us as americans like I, I was just in western europe last year and i was kind of shocked by actually like how dirty france was like it was actually worse than what i'm used to in america but like the people coming in from like singapore or like tokyo or moscow like i've met russians before the war i don't, I don't really talk to them anymore unfortunately twitter kind of bans all of them <laughs> before the elon time but uh when, when you hear when you hear them talk about like going to america they're 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 kind of like almost disgusted by the way our cities are like and and there's like a certain energy that these people also have of like they're like hyper innovators they're hyper like go-getters and that that like culture feels like it's dying in the country right now and it's just like it's this like gut instinctual feeling where it's like something about that it is ringing true to me where there's something that is dying in american culture where these other places it is rising interesting I mean, I know that like from our uh, conversation many, many episodes ago where Matt Walsh was saying like, we should be more like Singapore and we should imprison drug dealers and stuff. There are certain authoritarian streaks and different, perhaps what might be more, more cultural norms, but that have been translated through into, you know, legislated policy Mm -hmm. that, that make life more restricted in areas like that, or like, you know, the Middle East, for example, which culturally, and you know legally is is fairly restrictive in certain ways as far as i know and and russia as well is there a correlation there that we're just like you know whatever goes goes you can sleep on the street you can do drugs wherever you want like is there a is there a case to be made for more authoritarianism in the united states to get that i i I think something that tucker said in that right there is eventually there comes a point where you have to forget about the abstractions and just think about the concrete reality of things is quality of life going up or down <laughs> in, in certain areas. Right. True. And in places like Dubai, Abu Dhabi, um, they're quite restrictive on various things. Right. Um, they have a much more controlled like police structure and they're like hyper watching people's cars and things like that. And, but crime rates are way down and, and all the wealth is fleeing there. Right. I mean, it's 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 complicated. So there are discrete reasons why the United States has seen like this slide from 2010 to 2020. Like Seattle used to be a pretty nice place, right? Denver was a pretty nice city. Like you would be. you would see these sorts of things, and there's been this huge decline in the last 12 years, 12, 14 years, something like that. Part of that is a Supreme Court decision that basically changed the rules on 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 how to deal with homeless. 
homelessness. Uh, some of that is terrible economic policy. Uh, the kicking down the can of the road in response to the 2008 financial crisis has effects. Those The hidden inflationary effects that kick people out of the middle class and make it impossible to be in the lower, lower classes in America is a real problem. Uh, deinstitutionalization and the problems that we would do deal with when it comes to uh, how we handle people with mental health issues in the United States. We either incarcerate them or we put them in the street. There's no, there's no else for them to go. Well, and this right. goes into what Tucker was saying. It's a voluntary choice of policymakers. Right. It well, doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, right. So it <laughs> right? did. The, the Supreme Court didn't have to decide, you know, well, a court, it wasn't the, the Supreme Court, but a court didn't have to decide that the, in order to like, in order to, if you're going to kick someone off someone's private property or public property, there has to be a, a, uh, enough beds uh, for them to go to. Right. And if there you're, isn't enough beds, then it's on you to like, let them camp there and, and, and poop in you, the streets on you being, being the municipality or right. whatever. Right. And, and like the other problems, like you saying there are problems with choice. I totally agree. If you talk to people who work in the worst parts of the city of the country, LA, and San Diego and places in Southern California that have the worst problems in this area that have had it for the longest, right? Since like the early 2000s where you can see people talking about the problemness of homelessness in, in California going all the way back then. It wants, it, it's it's because it's an entire industry. Michael Schellenberger, whoa. Michael Schellenberger has uh, his book, San Francisco, that details a lot of this and pulls a lot of these problems apart. It's not straightforward. It isn't just... We just don't want to fall into the trap of saying, well, if we just had, if we just arrested them all, that would solve the problem. That well, I, exactly. I, I have a friend in San Diego that just, that just told me yesterday, someone got stabbed outside of his office mm. <laughs> yesterday. Mm. He's like, <laughs> it's just like, eventually you got to like, eventually we got to figure out what's happening here. Right. Because yes. there is a rise in the problem right now. And it's not, it's not necessarily just like in prison everybody that's probably way too surface level of right. a problem one i i think a lot of the real problems is just our culture is dying like the culture itself is dying and what and that's leading people to having these massive drug problems and stuff it's not necessarily that drugs are legal it's that we have a degraded culture and that's very un- intangible i you agree can't with like, that right? i think it's inextricably also linked to economics like david is saying mm-hmm. you know as the economy as people's purchasing power and ability to sustain a a lifestyle that gives them a feeling of dignity uh, gets further and further out of out of reach and then maybe gets you know wrested from them by an event like covid or you know the great financial crisis mm-hmm. something like that you find yourself in a situation where you the, the ladder the rungs have been taken out and you literally can't get back from that place that you've fallen to and just yeah like like you guys have both said, just removing homeless people from the streets doesn't solve the problem. It just moves it somewhere else where you don't have to look at it or interact with it. It doesn't make it easier to live in a lower middle class lifestyle. But it does make your city look a lot better. There's less poop in the streets, right? And you don't have to deal with someone getting stabbed because a lot of that crime is related to drug use and the black market and all that kind of stuff. Yes, but it's sort of like charging your electric car with coal power from somewhere else. You're just you're exporting your pollution. Yeah. Right. And that's not solving the problem. Well, there's, the, the, well, and it's, it's important to know too, Thomas Sowell, there's no solution, right? There's no, there's no like magic button to press and it solves, you know, mental health disorders. Sure. Right. They'll always so, exist. Yeah. Right. So given that, given that there's always going to be a certain segment of society that has that your choices are, and with this are all the choices we've navigated as Western society is institutionalization, put these people in a insane asylum. 
right and, and why that means, did that go away that means coercion well because it was a <laughs> complicated story real complicated but basically the argument was is it was worse for them to be there right that it was ultimately an involuntary um incarceration for a victimless crime right because yes. they're just crazy right they, they just think they hear voices in their head they haven't committed a crime yet but they can't conduct jobs. They can't hold down a job because sometimes a voice in their head comes in and says that neighbors, you know, got aliens in their brains. Yeah. You know, you know whatever. I don't know. what. So how means. does a libertarian address that issue of when is coercion okay? Well, the problem is private property, private property, right? The solution is private property, right? but we don't live in that world. Yeah. Well, explain <laughs> that. What do you mean? The solution is private property. Explain. So, so if there's private, if you maximize private property, it isn't vague about who owns a sidewalk. Right, because Google owns a sidewalk, or Facebook owns a sidewalk, or your mom and pop store owns a sidewalk, or owns the road that goes to their house, or whatever. But, uh, not, but now, collectively, taxpayers in whole kind of sort of own the sidewalk well, because we're this, the government. And this gets sure. to right. the, uh, the this video. I can't remember what's the guy's last name. I never can pronounce it right. Bukele. So Bukele's point is that in the public sphere, you have to balance out whose rights you care about. Because it's the public sphere, right? right. It's public right away. So who matters? The business owner right outside the street, which is totally reasonable. Uh, the property owner who has to walk their kids to school every day mm-hmm. or the other person who is just in the street. Now, I think it should be who pays. That seems reasonable. If you pay taxes, you should be able to say that this road outside my street is like, I, I have a stake in this, right? right? And I have an economic incentive and the guy who's just pooping there is does not have that incentive right. or have that have that uh, have that ownership. That's got, totally, got to got to bring it back to property owners are the only ones that can vote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not necessarily saying that, but I've seen a minimum that the I rights am. balances that we're talking about should be should consider that right because that seems tied to justice in an important way. Right. If you pay for it, you should have some kind of right to it. Well, and and even more broadly than that, it's like you know if something is a public resource, it should be available for fair and equal use by the entirety of the public in that area. And if someone's that's camping, also crazy people camping on the streets no, and things like that. No, right? no, 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 <laughs> I would, I would disagree with that. I think if a, if a person puts a camper on a public street and is expect expecting to keep it there, they are then saying this is effectively my private property, but that's not appropriate because it's actually everyone's property and not now, not everyone can use it. Yeah. Right. So it's a homesteading question, right? And we, we don't, we don't let you homestead out in the woods. Uh, if you if we had a pure property rights regime that would require all these homeless people to go out into the woods and survive, uh, that would probably result in a lot of people freezing to death Hunger across games. the American Northwest or, or dying of starvation across the American Southwest, which is inhumane, which that's how people would see it. Right. Yeah. And I and I could understand why you get there. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think there is no solution here. Sure. What I can tell you is that there's a tremendous cost to we're going to allow the homeless to completely destroy our city for decades. People are going to flee California like crazy. And then when Xi Jinping shows up, we're going to clean it up the week before. That shows you what the priority is. Yeah. It isn't you. And that's why El Salvador has the president they do. And that's why he can get away with the rhetoric that he's getting with. And, and people are like, yeah, I get it. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to un the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. 
Yeah, so let's let's play this video from uh, Nayib Bukele. So Bukele, for those that don't know, he is the he just won re-election in El Salvador. He's the Bitcoin president. He's the guy that was talking about like Bitcoin volcano mining and stuff like that. But he's been uh, he's been criticized through his first term for his crackdown on crime and the gangs in El Salvador because El Salvador went from being one of the least safe uh, kind of geographical jurisdictions in all of north and south america central america to being the safest in a four-year period and him winning very handedly in his re-election something to, to also consider is he won as a third party on his first election like massive political shifts in this country and the imf doesn't like him <laughs> and the international order doesn't like him because he's very critical of how america's handling their situations right now well he made a btc bitcoin uh, legal tender in the country. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I'll I'll translate what he uh, what he's saying here, but he's uh, talking very kind of Malay like, like very popular to a large crowd of people out after his reelection here. So um, he's saying, we have gone from being literally. And this is no exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. We have gone from being literally the most dangerous country in the world to being the safest country in the entire Western Hemisphere. Big crowd of people. Like their horns, man. The safest country in the American continent. And what did they tell us? You're violating human rights, in quotes. Whose human rights? The rights of the honest people? No. Perhaps we have prioritized the rights of the honest people over the criminals' rights. That is all we have done, and that's what you say is a human rights violation? I ask these organizations, I ask the governments of the foreign nations, I ask these journalists, why do you want them to kill us? Why do you want to see Salvadoran blood spilled? Why aren't you happy to see that blood doesn't run in our country as it did before? Why? Why should we die? Why should our children die so that you can be happy and that we are re respecting your false democracy, which you don't even respect in your own country? Savage. Harsh. <laughs> wonder who he's talking about <laughs> <laughs> yeah i wonder who he's talking about yeah okay so what are your thoughts here kyle between what he's done to create safety perhaps is it at the expense of liberty for some for all there was no liberty before because everything was run by by gangs <laughs> before and now he's cleaned up the gangs gangs that were propped up by american foreign policy and, and intel intelligence operations right and now he's cleaned up those gangs and people are actually being able to live somewhat prosperously way more than they did before. So like th this is, this is one of the problems I have with, cause I see a lot of people in like the libertarian Cato reason sphere criticizing Bukele all the time. And there's like, Oh, well he's just like violating human rights, which is exactly what he's talking about right there. It was just like, I don't know, man, El Salvador was really bad before mm -hmm. and now it's not <laughs> right. So what did, what so did like, like, like I, I think what ended up happening is way better than it was before. Yeah, so like just mass. get you a sense of the the statistics, and obviously the statistics don't 
capture the experience, right? And there's problems with reporting and all that kind of stuff. There's just details there, right? So there's a difference between lived experience and the statistics, but the statistics don't lie, right? Per 100,000 people in El Salvador in 2015, 106 um, was the um, the crime rate, right? 106 crimes per 100,000? Estimates of unlawful homicides purportedly inflicted on the result of domestic disputes, interpersonal violence, violence, conflicts over land resources, blah, blah, blah. So did, pretty much we, Didn't we just say crime. America's was six? 106. <laughs> no, but didn't we just say America's was America six? America's was six. That's, Putin's was, well, that's, that's was four. That's per capita. Are we still talking? Per, per capita, yes. Okay. Per capita, per 106... 106 per 100,000 okay. people versus America, which was 6.9. Yes. Right. Think and then it's, that. and then, and then by now it's gone down to 18. Wow. So even as you're talking now, it was not nearly the same as America or Russia or Poland or, or, or Germany well, or whatever. Four year period. But he that's just, still a huge decline. Well, he just said it was the safest in on the continent. Safest in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, I'm not sure what he means. I, I think he means in like South America. I think and is what it, he meant. And he might be larger. Crime oh no, he did too. say Western he Hemisphere. He could be he including things like robbery or something like that. I, I, I he said crime, and I'm not this sure is just what homicides. He means. Yeah, 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 this is just that's just that's uh, that's hyperbole, right. probably. Right, but I mean, regardless, there's there's a massive decline, and like this this isn't they've been higher in 1995. The rate was 138 per hundred thousand. That's huge. That's, a, that's, that's, that's like high as like Turkey is right now with all the problems going on. With, and those yeah, problems right. were propped up by the Reagan administration mm-hmm. back in the 80s. Yeah. Like, yeah. like the, the, the leadership that came in was installed by the Reagan administration. In El Salvador. Yeah. And, this, and that's who he beat out as a third party candidate yeah. um, on his first election. A candidate that had never had a president before. Right. So, or, or sorry, a party that had never had a president before. Yeah. Wow. So if you have a situation where the gangs can, gangs can so easily kill witnesses, that if you look at the we got I'll post a Washington Post article by um, it's really good by uh, Megan McArdle from the Libertarian Party uh, basically saying that at, as you much as eighty percent of Angela the ter- Angela Angela McArdle mm. should be it's Angela I, 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 I think you were mixing up Megan no no, no no this is a different person this is <laughs> okay. this is oh. Megan McArdle oh okay yeah. maybe, maybe they're related sister but as much as eighty percent eighty percent of the territory of, of of El Salvador was controlled by gangs at one point wow yeah so it's it's not Go ahead. Functionally, what did that look like for him to just go and imprison the gang members? Like, how how did he do it? Well, it's well mass uh, mass trials, right? Like, it was just it was it was moving people extremely fast through the system, probably with a lower standard that we would be comfortable with, right? Mm-hmm. As as Americans now, like, it's it's like a judgment thing that I can totally understand people wanted to do. You want to say, hey, I'm skeptical of government, and government can railroad people into 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 in the in prison. You can be a very big skeptic of mass incarceration as a solution to social problems, right? That said, in the case of of El Salvador, they didn't have control over their own country, right? And in that situation, it wasn't great. Uh, and without a monopoly of force, they wanted in a situation where they were there was a constant war going on between the intelligence agencies of other countries, the gangs, and the and the government. And and there's probably innocent people that got roped up in that. Like mm-hmm. that, that's, that's the harsh truth. That is the case. And that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And I hope those people get justice for that, but the country is in a much better place than it was now. Like, yeah. and this is the, this is the, like, we can talk about all the abstractions around this sort of like Tucker Carlson was talking about and what he was talking about with like Moscow, Singapore, et cetera. But like, there's also the concrete reality of what they were dealing with in the moment. And the country was run by gangs before. And it's, and that the people have somewhat kind of taken control back from that and the reason why it was like that is largely due to u.s foreign policy like like that's yeah. sort of like the migrant crisis and everything right like well, and i guess there's one, a lot of problems that come because of that and a lot of people have to make very harsh decisions and it's, it's the unfortunate reality of how the world works right 
Well, for sure. And I think that one way to maybe look at it is, is like we, we look at uh, economic development as it pertains to sort of pollution in developing countries too, right? Like you go from literally burning yeah. wood or cow shit to heat your house to maybe something that's a little bit less uh, terrible for human health and pollution like coal or whatever. And then you go to natural gas and, you know, you work your way up this continuum to the point where your standard of, of living is high enough that you can actually afford to worry about the things like pollution and the climate. In this case, if you're having wars in the streets, how, how quality is that life for innocent people? How many, uh, how many innocent people were killed in that era versus were perhaps swept up accidentally by this, you know, criminal justice, um, you know, revolution effectively. And, And then, you know, hopefully you would see that there would be recourse for going back and maybe retrying some people that got swept up in that in the wrong way going forward, such that they were able to triage the situation, but not just then, you know, lock the door and throw away the key. I think triage is the right way to think about it, right? It's like, there's a snowball effect. The more crime that's happening, the easier it is to commit crime because your system is gummed up by the criminal system, right? If you're all, if there's so much crime going on, the next crime has a marginally less cost because you're less likely to get caught because there's so, so much corruption, so many problems in the system. So question for you guys, would you support similar measures in the United States regarding our drug problem and the homeless crisis? I don't think we're at 106, you know, murders per hundred thousand, mm-hmm. right? Where, where, where we have that sort of level of problems. I don't think, I, I think, I, I think I, I, there's multiple ways to look at the problem. It, it has to be contextualized to the country you're looking at it in. Also to be clear, I wouldn't necessarily be referring explicitly to like incarcerating right. people who are living on the streets who have drug problems, but like a, a similar top down institutional problem solving for right. a problem that is not where El Salvador was, but is certainly as bad as we've seen it in the United States mm-hmm. in my lifetime. Well, and I, I got critique in the discord from some folks uh, <laughs> on what I said about the cops on how we should be like libertarian should and conservatives should actively be like funding fraternal orders for the police so that they can actually do their jobs. And, and you try to sway them to your si- side by subverting the police culture instead of cucking out to the progressive technocrats. Right. Like that was my take. And I still hold true to that take is right now. Cops are very handcuffed. They can't actually uh, they can't actually act on real crime like, like they can and they do, but like not to the effect that they should be like cops should be cleaning up the streets in these cities right now. Like there's a like I think that would do the public good. Um, it's not the system that I wish we had right now, but it's the system we got and we should work within that system right now until we can change the system. Right. Um, it, which is exactly, you know, everybody's every libertarian's hero, Rothbard. It's exactly what Rothbard said. <laughs> like, I, like I'm, I'm not changing. You guys are the ones ignoring your hero. I'm the one saying that that's what, that's what it is, right? Well, and it's, um, it's, it's like enforcing a property rights regime and doing that doesn't necessarily mean incarcerating anybody, but it also means you would have to do things like we're going to allow you to build. So if you want to build a tiny home village so that you can better service these people, you actually can. Right. That there's so many gummed up in the, in the system. So if you're saying, yeah, we're going to le- elect a libertarian dictator who's going to do all the right things and none of the wrong things. Like, yeah, sure. Okay, fine. I'll, I'm, I'm on board. We're going to literally take Ron Paul and make him dictator of the world. And I'll trust Ron Paul. There's not a lot of people I'd trust to do that. Right. Yeah. That's so, it. So you know, like, that- if you say to do that, like, would you prefer that? I was like, yeah, I mean, I, theoretically, most people aren't that person. Will this guy go on to be a dictator? I don't know. 
Maybe, maybe not. The 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 West is already calling him a dictator. Yeah, right? Right. Like, yeah. Like but, the propaganda is already putting him in that light. They're they're staging fake protests outside. Like we can, dude. I saw fake protests for this guy. They had a uh, back when all the Bitcoin stuff was going on. Um, I, there was somebody that filmed the protest from a distance, like out of a window, out of like an apartment building, and I saw the image of what the like the IMF goons were trying to paint. And it, was, it looked like this massive protest, like down with Bukele, he's a dictator, all this stuff. And then you see from a distance, there's like seven people. Mm. It's like totally staged, right. totally mm. staged, so, which is not new. That's right. never, that's, I've never seen that. that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you're saying that if there were to be a more authoritarian move, just saying, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do this. Yes. Coercion is going to be used to remove people from the streets into something that societally we've decided is a better standard of living for them and for everyone uh, that there would then have to be a regulatory unburdening in a sense to allow for there to be market solutions to how and where those people are going to be served. You you can stop just doing housing first, for example, for federal matching funds, right? That would be a simple one, right? Right now there's only one method that the, that the feds with their charity dollars are willing to fund millions and billions of dollars are moving around for these for these people to help them but only one way in certain kind of organizations can get that slush money right and and there's terrible incentives for them privatizing those and putting them in a situation where they actually have to raise money by showing results is a mm. great is a great point so there are so many different ways that you could break apart that thing i i just I, you don't want to you don't want to go into it because we have a different history and a different culture and a different people than el salvador you wouldn't want to just like import that but i do think that there are Lots of things that you could go after and attack that wouldn't be popular, right? That would be very, you know, consequential, like privatizing the the charity in this in this way. That would create better incentives for people to actually experiment to find out what best services those people in a humanitarian way. Yeah, because because humanitarianism doesn't come because we dictate it by law. It comes because our morals and values order themselves by our reputations with each other. This is the moral sentiments theory of Adam Smith, basics of of economics and the liberal order. When we when we 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 have those values because of our heritage and where we come from and, and everything like that, right? The West, it isn't that we have those imposed by government. We would lose them if we didn't have that. So if you loosen those things, I don't think all that charity disappears. In fact, I think the charity becomes far more effective sure. because it isn't a giant racket. Yeah. So much of this stuff yeah. is a racket to keep people on the streets and addicted to the drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Secondarily, the drugs are not are much more are much more dangerous in there, and all the crime is much more dangerous because of the drug war. And and if we if we if we took away a lot of those negative incentives and moved in a different direction, I think that would change a lot of that calculus. There'd still be drug use. There'd still be people who got too addicted to drugs and you shouldn't do drugs and they're terrible for your life. But we shouldn't therefore assume that, um, that therefore we have to keep them criminalized, right? Forever. And, and, and in this way that actually probably makes a situation more violent than it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, a lot of this would be better if our incentives were better and if we actually had like real private property, but we just do not live in that point right now. Like in a perfect libertarian society, because like I know I, I can just feel the libertarians just want to like dogpile on me. Paul's right over here like, like ah, I, I can feel it. Ah, right don't now. be too just, um, <laughs> Like force can be used to remove people from your private property. The problem right now is that we have a lot of public property. So all the incentives are messed up right now. Mm-hmm. So we can't like there is no libertarian solution to the public property dilemma right now because it's not private property. Mm-hmm. Right. And we and we have to live within that reality 
reality in the moment. We can we can try to change it, but we also have the current moment that we have to deal with. Right. right. I'll give you another economic uh, assessment of that. The use of the private property should go to the user who imposes the least amount of secondary order costs on their opponents and and and, and gives the most about a secondary bit secondary order benefits. Can Meaning, you give us an using example? your sidewalks to get to work is a higher order use than using it to poop on. Because going to work incurs benefits on everybody because you provide a service You're for your community. This nice while, little sidewalk while there for poop, you. <laughs> while pooping on the sidewalk incurs a deficit. A cost. A cost. A deficit. Deficit. A deficit. Deficit. <laughs> a deficit. Right. So like, if you want to come up with an algorithm like that and say, that's how we're going to decide it, that would be a pretty compatible algorithm to that sort of thing. It isn't yeah. perfect. It, it has problems. But this is the this is where we get to when we have the situation we're in. And I, I will say, this is also the the closed border libertarian general argument for the for the immigration stuff like the dave smiths of the world it is exactly kind of what i said right there which is the private property versus public property distinction like that is where that argument stems from like yeah i think it's slightly different but we don't have to get into that right now but like but like this isn't a new concept is what i'm saying like like there's similarities that exist there with the crime and the all of that right so as related to the immigration question was we have Rand paul and mike lee and a couple other senators ran a big filibuster i care about the bankrupting of america i care about the looting of our treasury there can be an honest debate over national security or what is in our vital security but there never is a debate If you look closely at what people say, they'll simply declare it's in our national security to send money to Ukraine. There isn't really a debate. I actually think it's the opposite. I think sending money to Ukraine actually makes our national security more endangered. I think it threatens our vital national security to send more money to Ukraine. Why? Because I think it threatens the fiscal solvency of our country. I think it, along with so much of the rest of the spending, is dragging America down and threatening a day of destruction. Good on you, Rand Paul. So he was uh, amongst a uh, a group of Republicans who were standing against this immigration bill, which uh, it's a very loose term to call it an immigration bill, because really what it was is some border policy stuff wrapped in with a bunch of money going to Ukraine yeah. and Israel and Taiwan, yeah. correct? I wouldn't even call it an immigration bill. That's, I, what I've mostly seen described as foreign aid package, and they're just including this as like as if our relationship with Mexico and South America and the rest of the world was, the border was part of that. Oh. So the way it broke down was uh, $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, $8 billion for Taiwan, and are under $10 billion for a wider humanitarian assistance uh, overall. What business do we have giving money to anyone at this point? <laughs> no, uh, you know, it's, it's like Putin said, you're $33 trillion in debt and you're doing this to yourself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? it stings coming from him. You know, it's like, damn it. <sighs> he wasn't right. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. And like, I, I listened to the, uh, the uh, Twitter spaces um, Mike Lee had with um, Vivek Ramaswamy and Elon Musk and David Sachs and, there was, there was some other congressmen that joined and stuff too. And, you know, I mean, good on Elon for broadcasting this to so heavily, right? Like he yeah. gets on a Twitter spaces with tons of people to be able to listen to it. And is very vocal about this on his platform. Good on him. But it's one of those things where it went through the Senate, you know, like 
there, there was no hope of it actually making <laughs> like being stopped in the Senate, right? Right. But no, they made the no. noise that they could. That's the important thing about the filibusters, mm-hmm. raising awareness of the issue. Additionally, it was brought to light, JD Vance, for example, brought it to light that it was a that the that the spending on Ukraine specifically was annualized out so that if President Trump if Trump became president again, he would wouldn't be able to stop Ukraine funding without breaking the law. So it would be up to Congress to repeal this. Yeah. Effectively, he would have no power over that. Right. Which is like, which is an impeachment <laughs> trap. Right. right? Mm. For the next president coming. Sure. In. Right. You, you're basically locked into two years of this. Right. And, and, and like, and what was important here was that it was brought up and got major views. Like what we're looking at here, this was uh, that's half a million views on a video for Rand Paul talking about how this actually makes us less safe. And that's an important point to make that, the, that this is not a sensible foreign policy, all that kind of stuff. So that that rose to the top this week. Uh, I, I would feel like we'll, we'll have to go through this quickly because we spent so much a lot, so much time on the other thing. Then we'll skip Mike Lee and just go that this bill is went to the House. Speaker Johnson, uh, the guy that we talked about all last year, uh, who came up because the old speaker who was a big Ukraine hawk, McCarthy, McCarthy got kicked out. Now, Speaker Johnson's not exactly he's not hard on Ukraine, right? He's not like a. He's not Mike. He's not Massey, right? Mm-hmm. But he's at least he at least isn't completely sold out for the neocons the way that McCarthy was. Uh, and, and he's more fiscally responsible. Yes, and he's talking about there got to be offset. This is died on arrival. There's not nearly enough budget stuff for the border. The immigration stuff that was in it was weak and doesn't really do much to actually help uh, and actually change the laws around immigration or force the president into a situation where he has to implement the law as it exists uh and lastly it's just it's just too much money that we can't afford uh that said i doubt it's going to be completely doa once it gets to the house my prediction is that this that'll be rewritten and then pass the house in some other form and then go to conference committee where they can then try to make up a, a new compromise version between the two before we pivot to the next thing from this they're related to this the house just recently voted to impeach um, Secretary Mayorkas. Yeah. yeah, it's actually I didn't track how the vote ended up on that. How did that wind up? Um, it was it was close. I think it was within one vote, if I recall correctly. It, yeah, it was within it was like one tw- vote. Two fourteen yeah, right. to two thirteen. Then there were a handful of Republicans. I want to say Wisconsin, Colorado, and one other that yeah that ended up switching sides. Two fourteen to two thirteen. Uh, okay, so what what bearing what significance does that have in relation to? You know, the whole the whole border conversation, the, the immigration issue. Well, basically, the argument from the Republicans is that Mayorkas has abandoned the post, right? <laughs> like right that, he's not enforcing the law. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that the laws as they are, they're not enforcing. And, you know, it's it's a it's a solid argument. I mean, look, one point four million individuals were encountered at the border this year. There is a there is a problem on a much larger scale that we've ever seen in our history right yeah. here. So there's something going on and there's just, there's no real response from the Biden administration to do anything about it. In fact, they're actively fighting Texas's efforts to secure the border. Also so. strange how Mayorkas was on the board of the group funding the migrant camps. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Quite true. Might be a coincidence. Does maybe a coincidence. <laughs> I'm sure that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> just the same way that this bill that we just talked about as it stands is dead on arrival in the house is the impeachment proceeding dead on arrival when it hits the Senate. Yeah. The Democrats aren't going to, it's not going anywhere, Yeah, but, but it's an important part of the dialogue to play and make sure that the public remembers that the house Republicans, they can't control everything, but they are doing this and they're all pushing this and it advances the dialogue saying there's something broken. And if you actually enforce the law here, and, and like, okay, so the first day that Biden came into office, he suspended tons and tons of executive orders. They didn't need to do that. 
then you can change those executive orders right now. And we you would get a different result. It wouldn't fix the problem altogether. We'd need more systematic immigration reform, but it'd be a heck of a lot better than the current situation. Like, for example, the Remain in Mexico uh, situation changes the incentives for Mexico, right? To not sure. allow them through their southern border, right? Right. So, you know, that's something that Biden can implement, but he can't do that because of the political incentives to doing what Biden, what, what Trump did. Right. Right. Much less he can get sued. And you say Biden, I mean, you really mean Biden's administration. Biden's yeah. not, Biden's not really saying or doing much. Well, he's back now, baby. Dark Brandon is back. Remember, <clears throat> want to do the member berries? We have to do the member berries of Dark Biden. I Dude. remember. Just, just want to say this has 220 million views. Ooh. This tweet. And, uh, so is this like a, is this an, an old like Bitcoin laser eyes reference? That, that's that's why that's why I think Bitcoin hit fifty two uh, thousand <laughs> fifty two thousand dollars today. Um, yep. it's it's up twenty percent this week. It's uh, because Biden is a uh, laser laser focused <laughs> until hundred k. I think laser branded. Yeah, laser branded. Yeah, so you guys you guys remember when he did the speech and he had like the big red lighting and he's like oh and he's doing all that kind of stuff and then they backed off because it blew up in their face. I think yes. this was posted after the 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 Super Bowl, I, I think right? this I think this was some clever intern was like, you know, a lot of people are saying that we rigged the Super Bowl, so here it is. Let's yeah. buy, let's go into it. <laughs> Pretty funny stuff. They leaned in, but I think um, it certainly did not communicate what they thought well i mean it's it's a joke of course it's not a very it's pretty funny it's pretty funny but then you have this joke of a terrible explanation of shrinkflation well and this was a super bowl message and it's it's one of these things so like there's so many things and we can't we're not going to be able to go through all of them we didn't even put all of them in the notes there's so many things that happened with biden this week that is just like it feels to me that they're trying to make him look bad it just seems that way. Yeah, right? I, I've seen that. I've seen that narrative, you know, you know, put out there a little bit, and I, I don't disagree. I mean, it seemed like that press conference he gave, where he kind of lost his temper uh, at a at a journalist, happened, and then obviously he he missed remembered meeting and talking to all these people, some of whom haven't been in office or have been dead for decades and he said that mexico has to open up their borders to the palestinians (laughs) (laughs) right it's like if there's a a gaff tracker for biden it's like just plodding along and now it's like starting to hockey stick right because they have to put him out for all kinds of reasons that we're gonna do right yeah let's so he has this uh quick super bowl message for us uh talking about the economy which also something to note they've abandoned binadomics as a term yeah they've also done that because apparently it just wasn't going well yeah so, who, who would have thought once again i think the black and red background is just not working for him they love that but i mean this is supposed imperial. to be like he's in a theater right, yeah, right. so yeah but yeah but here's a uh, um good old sleepy joe um explaining economics to us the super bowl sunday if you're anything like me, you like to be surrounded by a snack or two while watching the big game. You know, when buying snacks for the game, you might have noticed one thing. Sports drinks bottles are smaller. A bag of chips has fewer chips, but they're still charging it just as much. And as an ice cream lover, what makes me the most angry is that ice cream cartons have actually shrunk in size, but not in price. I've had enough of what they call shrinkflation. It's a ripoff. Some companies are trying to pull a fast one by shrinking the products little by little and hoping you won't notice. Give me a break. The American public is tired of being played for suckers. I'm calling on companies to put a stop to this. Let's make sure businesses do the right thing now. Come on, man. You got to have give me a break on there. Give Give me me a break. break. (sighs) All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. We can't get into this very deep. Go off, queen. But shrinkflation <laughs> is a phenomenon of inflation. Inflation exists because the monetary supply is increased. Could you bring up the M2 money supply real quick? Just real quick. It only takes a second to Google it. 
Okay, so as the quantity of money increases, such as when you print trillions of dollars in, or in response to COVID and all these COVID bailouts that we did over and over and over again, we did like seven of them, right? That introduces new money to the system and that creates an increase in prices. Now, as you're as a company, you have a choice. You can either increase your prices, which your customers don't like, and you are sensitive to what your customers don't like. So what do you do? Hopefully, don't increase your prices. You try not to increase your prices. And one of the ways that you try not to do that is you reduce the quantity of the items that you sell and try to keep the price the same. Well, and this is the crazy thing. Prices have gone up and sh- and everything's shrinking. Yes. Right? Like, that's, this is, that's the... Well, this, it's the calculation you're trying to negotiate. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the M2 money supply. And if you notice that thing where it goes, whoop, right up, that's, that's COVID. COVID. And when that happened, we are paying for that increase now and the a dramatic increase even after that. So, so like, you can't... You can't underestimate what this means for the average American to say like like that they that the government is blaming private corporations for responding to the increase in prices that are created by the government. Well, they're claiming that uh, that that uh, companies are just using inflation as this specter to sort of hide the fact that they're just gouging people now. But that's the thing is like this is the thing that ticks me off. And there was another thing that happened this week on inflation we won't talk about. But uh, very briefly, it was just that. Um, uh, what's his name? The new Daily Show host. He was the old Daily Show no, host. Noah. No, no, the new guy who came back. John, John Stewart. Stewart. He's like, you know, the corporate profits are up by, you know, thirty uh, something percent or something like that. Well, that's because that's because you're measuring inflation. And corporate profits nominally, as it increases, it has to increase with all the other parts of inflation because that's how you pay your shareholders because that's where the capital structure comes from. If you don't understand what a capital structure is, of course that looks bad. But the capital structure is also the thing that pays your retirement. Mm-hmm. It makes sure that you actually can get a loan. Mm-hmm. So the same. The economic ignorance is what frustrates me because you can get that thing and you'll you'll see, oh yeah, the corporation's just all 8% more greedy this year than they were last year. Like they couldn't shrinkflation in 2014. Why didn't they then? Maybe because the incentives have changed. They created a different incentive structure where they increased the money supply. And once they do so, that's where you're going to get the shrink and uh, shrinkflation problem. And that's and it's so obvious to anyone who pays attention at all. <sighs> That there's no argument on the other side that I can see that is in good faith at this point, because you have to ignore the facts that the increase in money supply happened. They're really good at uh, getting people to ignore facts, though. Yeah. That's their that's their job. Anyway, yeah, it, like the fact that uh, so, for example, the Bi- Biden uh, he has this whole problem right now with the documents, right? And so, a special counsel came out and they said we're not going to cl- uh, pr- uh, pursue charges against Biden. And the reason why wasn't it was because the evidence was weak was part of their thing, right? I don't know that he did it on purpose. Mm. And the reason why the evidence was weak that he did it on purpose, and that's that's what you know that's important. Like you have to prove that they knowingly did this, is because he has a poor memory and he's an elderly man who doesn't know where he's at, right? In the report, they say that he he, he couldn't remember when Bo Biden died, his son, yeah, and that he couldn't remember exactly when like when events took place when he was vice president versus when he was president. Yeah, he couldn't remember the period of time that he was the vice president. That's what yeah. I read. Yeah. So, hey, and we mentioned all the other stuff. That also happened this week. You saw all kinds of cover for the president over this time period. And it's absolutely absurd what's going on with the, with the president right now. Well, and now, right, he's supposed to have this physical and they're saying that he's, uh, he's not going to undergo a cognitive assessment during this physical. First, first U.S. president to ever refuse it. It's my understanding. That's what I, that's the word on the street is that's what it is. Uh, you know, I think that's stunning and brave, frankly, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's not going to be confined to their system. That's right. It's just ageism. <laughs> yeah. So uh, here we have uh, his press secretary talking about this. Does the white house think that the, the 
idea of the president taking a cognition test, a cognitive test, as a part of this uh, physical is a legitimate idea, particularly just on the heels of the special counsel report, more polling, as my colleague Selena just mentioned, showing that many American people have concerns about that. Look, I got this question last week as well, and I'm just going to say what the what uh, Dr. O'Connor, it's kind of a, uh, what he said to me about a year ago uh, when the report came out last year, uh, obviously on his physical, uh, which is the president proves every day how he operates, every how day. he thinks, right? But by dealing with world leaders, by making really difficult decisions on behalf of the, the American people, whether it's domestic, whether it's national security. And so he shows it every day on how he thinks, how he operates. Uh, and so that is how, uh, that is how the Dr. O'Connor sees it. And that's how I'm going to leave it. About the idea of taking that kind of a test. I believe, for me, you're asking me my personal opinion. Uh, he is sharp. Uh, he is on top of things. He, when we have uh, meetings with him, with his staff, he's constantly pushing us, getting, trying to get more information. And so that has been my experience with this president. Uh, because he's anything confused. else outside of that? And so I'll just leave it there. He's asking a lot of questions because he's confused. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, no well, shit. I'm, I'm vice president, man. I can't be making these decisions. Come on, man. Oh. Yeah, that's just pure cover. She's like, we got a really good thing going on here. Don't don't ruin it. This is the worst. Like, this this is, is the worst job in existence. Oh, I could oh, you imagine? So Presidential bad. press secretary. Your oh, job is just geez. to get up there and lie every single day, and like you know, that's your job. You're just you're supposed to run cover. That is the worst job ever. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. So the question, the big the big internet conspiracy was whether or not they're trying to get rid of Biden. Why this stuff coming out? I just think this is just stuff that's going to come out when you got a president like that. I, I don't know if there's a conspiracy here. Or do you really need that right now until there's more evidence? But geez, well, I think man. the conspiracy was around that press conference that they held very late in the evening, which he typically does not do. And he right took, after the Tucker Carlson interview dropped yeah. with Putin. And he took unscripted questions from the press, which he doesn't do. Yeah. Right. Like he, that's where the Mexico comment happened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah that's, right. I mean, they like tell him who to call on and that person has a question that they're going to ask him and that's all pre-designed. But this ostensible reason for that was because this report came out that said that the reason why he's not going to get indicted is because he doesn't have the cognitive capability. Right. Right. So they were trying to inoculate and push that back. But what they actually did was just double down into it. It's, it's, right. it's like well, the, it's like the great Shane Gillis said is every time he ends with a with a press conference, he just all of a sudden turns into a Roomba <laughs> just starts walking <laughs> the around the room. Shane the great Shane Gillis. <laughs> Who, uh, did, has he hosted SNL yet? Uh, I think that's in a couple weeks. We're going to have him do that? Is it? Yeah. He's also the, he's also the, the new representative for Bud Light. Did you see that? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say new. He's, he's been a representative for Bud Light throughout uh, their, their traumatic Really? Period. Well, not, not now it's a, official. He's just, he, uh, he's known for drinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, representative in the informal sense that he uh, drinks okay. like 30 of them every time he's on Rogan's show. Oh, wow. But yes, he did sign a pretty big contract with them, it sounds like. Wow. Did, did anybody see him, him in an ad? I didn't see him in a Super Bowl. I was expecting to see a Bud Light Shane Gillis Super Bowl commercial, but I don't think there was. I, I think there's supposed to be an ad with like him on a Clydesdale or <laughs> something coming. Yeah. Well, I could sort of love this guy. Let's just put him on there. <laughs> well, I, I mean, that, that's totally their strategy, right? UFC, yeah, right. Shane Gillis. I don't know what else, but yeah, you have Dana White out here pitching Bud Light now too, right? I mean, even uh, I, I watched, and I don't know why, but I watched the uh, Kid Rock interview on, on Tucker's show, like one of his weird little, oh, like, yeah, yeah. you know, side shows, and he was saying like, you know, yeah, even though I shot that like case of Bud Light or whatever, like 
you know, I, I, I love that beer. Like it's America's beer. I want to, I want to drink that beer. I would forgive them if they, if they change their ways, if they like changed course, you know, and you saw the conservatives were out like, no, we're not giving up. <laughs> yeah. We've got to punish them forever till they apologize. Like, well, but like, yeah. so like there's actually an interesting game theory question in there is like, they have now turned around yeah. to a large degree and they've had to make kind of an embarrassing concession. Like there is a point where now you should take over the company. Like you as the conservative culture should take that opportunity right. and take it over. Like you won yeah, the culture you, war on that. Yeah. yeah that's, that's right. the question. When do you do, when do you be uh, gracious? Right? When do you say, Hey, you, you know, you're on my side. I see that you're on my side. Like that's the question. And I don't think you really need to do that with a corporation because they're a corporation. But at some point, the conservatives probably ought to just give yeah, it up. Yeah, but but give you but you push out like you, you have all these corporations pushing pushing ESG stuff. Yeah. Once they start to do that, now you take it over culturally. Yeah. Like like your cultural bias takes takes hold of the company now. Yeah, and like that's the game theory right, right. there is like because pull them away from the incentives that they're following. Start using your incentives to make them follow those incentives. That's how you win culture for sure. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. So I have uh, no transition here after yeah. that, but uh, <laughs> I want to talk about the story. Does. Oh no, shit! I want to talk about the story uh, <laughs> because we got to talk about culture, right? And NPR put out this crazy thing this week. Um, this gets it across uh, the title as well as the first part here. Uh, the title is "Masturbation Abstinence is Popular Online." Doctors and therapists are worried, right? And it's. It, very interesting, right? So a couple quotes here. More than two decades of growing internet use has surfaced fears about the social and psychological impacts of nearly unfettered access to pornography. But many researchers and sex therapists worry that the online communities that have formed in response to these fears often endorse inaccurate medical information, exacerbate mental health problems, and in some cases overlap with extremist and hate groups. So if you're trying to stop looking at porn, you might end up in an all alt-right pipeline <laughs> it, it reminds me of the old like you know first it was jordan peterson then it was andrew tate now it's just fapping online yeah, yeah you can't do <laughs> can't do any of that oh, stuff. i was eating meat and then it was going to the gym right if, if you go to the gym too much you're uh, oh. alt-right radical oh yeah. my god that actually just reminds me there was a big oh we should have included this i should find it there was a, a big thing there was a big like twitter thread that had a bunch of lefties outraged where it was saying like it was trying to convince lefties that they need to go to the gym and they were like all mad about it so so <sighs> this this is specifically get into a specific online space called nofap right and if you don't know what fapping is infer find the urban dictionary whatever so well some figures in this space are no, religious Google it. No, most frame their advice as science-based forms of self-improvement or as a cure for pornography addiction a popular concept that is disrupted that is disputed by scientists and researchers who study sexuality for those who believe there may be addicted to porn the official nofap llc website suggests a no masturbation for 90 days during which the brain supposedly reboots like a computer other claim benefits now get this like this, set up this straw man man other claim benefits of avoiding masturbation may include superpowers like more confidence is that a superpower uh depends on your definition of a more superpower. romantic interest in women obviously see that's the thing that's the thing this i guess who this was written by Look, uh, find the I, author. Find the author. Is it a dude? Oh, probably not. Oh, yeah, no. It's, Lisa uh, Hagen. Lisa, I don't even know this, <laughs> but if you masturbate as a dude, you're less likely to talk to women because you're fulfilling your own needs. 
post nut clarity. <laughs> like, like this. this oh is, yeah. This is so dis like disconnected from like male like. Okay, so no fab LLC says it's not anti masturbation and it's not anti porn. And today, its creator says it's peer support group that people with problems with problematic pornography use. Right, and it's like it. It is. It gets into this whole thing where it like tells three different like people who got involved in this community. One person, it like gives like a very weak endorsement of it, and then three other people who had the most ridiculous like it didn't work for me sorts of things. One including somebody who turned out to be transgender, and it's kind of seen as like like a way to divert people from becoming transgender or something like that. It, it, the article is absolutely absurd, and it's just NPR wants you on porn. Now, one of the things that I thought was, if this was just this article, I probably would have passed right by like NPR is doing NPR stuff. But uh, uh, Breaking Points had this really great intro on this that connects it to very from some different elements in politics. I think is really important. About three minute clip uh, in the in the section, Kyle, to bring that up. And we can get time, into the, the liberals on the gym in a minute because we can we can. It's, with that it's it's okay. similar vibes. Yeah, though. you yeah, see we'll, the similar vibes. We'll stay it. with it. Yeah, it just made me think of it. Um, all right, Sagar, what are you looking at? Well, a crazy phenomenon that I've observed in the last few years is a concerted mainstream effort to target online male spaces for self-improvement. Much of it can be traced back to Gamer McGate and the fake moral panics about the so-called pickup movement. But in recent years, it's transformed into something else entirely. The latest iteration that you will all famously recall is the infamous MSNBC article about fitness is somehow fascist. But at a deeper level, the demonization has been in many forms for recent months and years. The targeting of any discussion Discussion about testosterone, about people doing their own research when it comes to medical procedures. My personal favorite latest, it recommends that people eat less protein because it goes against what the U.S. government recommends on nutrition. The tilt to all of Beta. it is a fear of self-discovery, <laughs> self-math. This just, made, this just gave me a thought. I'm going to pause it there. Yeah, that's fine. R- remember the... Uh what was it? The NATO dialogue about anti-science yeah. and them talking about how promoting meat-based diets is yeah. is anti-climate change yeah. and stuff. I just it made me think of That's that. That's exactly right. Yeah. Made me think of that. Another okay. element of that. Let's continue. Mastery and self-improvement, mostly by men who are eschewing official recommendations by medicine and government. The latest and the most shocking attack on this front occurred a few days ago by NPR, which ran a hit piece on a community of men online who are dedicated to shunning pornography and spreading the concern about its widespread usage of young men. The way that you know it is a hit piece is it relies on the testimony of so-called sexual experts, as if there is such a thing, and appears to basically endorse widespread porn usage by young men. They write, quote, many researchers and sex therapists worry that the online communities that have formed in response to fears often endorse inaccurate medical information, exacerbate mental health problems, and in some cases overlap with extremists and hate groups. Extremists and hate groups? My God. So, by the way, if you're wondering what those ties are, the NPR reporter relies on Reddit users making jokes in comments about the Illuminati and global elite, as well as Based. an alleged anti-feminist bent to caution around porn. Pornography. But what actually shocked me about the piece is not that it ran, but what I found out from one of the organizers behind the movement and how this piece fits into a concerted and multi-billion dollar effort in recent months by pornography companies to demonize men who are trying their best to stay away from them and institute guardrails for teenagers. Much of the machinery behind this story appears to have been orchestrated by the so-called free speech coalition in the United States. These so-called sex expert and the urologists who are quoted in the story, but 
both either have ties to the porn industry or have been supporters in the past. In fact, when I spoke to a person involved in the so-called NoFap movement who worked with NPR on the story, they revealed to me that NPR did not reach out to many of the people that they recommended they reach out to who have been positively impacted from abstaining from pornography. They instead decided to highlight a few examples of their own, only one who spoke positively and including two who said that they were no longer followers of the movement. By the way, as evidence for one of their former adherents who is now healthy, they pointed out to an individual who previously had ditched pornography, now consumes pornography regularly, and indulges in a cross-dressing fetish. According to them, that is supposedly healthy and cool, while ditching pornography is bad. Those that I spoke with at NoFab also notified me that NPR was provided with a list of 22 separate urologists that they could interview who would support their health claims. Their NPR instead interviewed their own, who, as I said, is a verified friend of the pornography industry. None of this is happening. Um, it, that, it actually reminds me, remember um, James O'Keefe several months ago got uh, somebody that like runs the Pornhub uh, like algorithms mm-hmm. or like works with them, like actively saying that they're trying to push transgender content on teenagers. Yeah. Remember that? That was like several yeah. months ago. James O'Keefe got somebody yeah. on that. I didn't see that, but it yeah. does not surprise me at all. Yeah, they're, they're specifically organizing their algorithm to push yeah. that content. Now, whether or not that's the result of that or whatever, yeah. it should be an open question. It should be debate rather than saying, I'm NPR and I interviewed these two people who have ties to the porn industry about why porn is good for you. Were and those like, ties uh, disclosed the, in no, the piece? No, I didn't find it in there. That's what was so surprising about it. And, and then, uh, okay, so imagine this. Imagine for a moment what we we're talking about was the environment. And I, you know, and it said, I'm NPR and I interviewed these two climate scientists and said that the earth is warming because of the sun, not because of carbon in the atmosphere. And then they said, and then, and then, you know, someone else came out and said, NPR is interviewing these people, not these 20 other scientists that said something else. And they're, and they're, and this is a hit piece. Anyway, everyone would understand that. But when it comes to men, men's issues and this sort of thing, you can get this craziness yep. that is purely a signal for people who read NPR. Yep. Right. To yep. like not change anything about their life. Right. Yep. It's obviously meant not to, because how many masculine men do you know who work out every day or on their jobs and doing their thing and they read NPR? None. <laughs> you know anyone who reads NPR? I know a couple of people. I, mean, I know a lot of people that listen to NPR. I don't like and, and, I, and I'm sorry, I judge them. <laughs> <laughs> it is government propaganda, right? I don't know how I would know that. Um, I don't often ask people like what their news sources are. Typically, I just depending on their worldview, I yeah. have a general idea right. of what they might where they might get their news, but. And I don't right. there's ask. a particular person that you're like that's an NPR listener like you just know <laughs> yes you know, like, yes but, yeah. you, but you know you're someone who's who's really interested in self-actualization and, and changing their lives and proving themselves eh, like I'm, you know if they listen to news at all are they going to NPR probably is not fitting their attitude because they're probably gonna be told that they're an all-round not Nazi oh for sure right well, I mean, like, already, they're not gonna go to that news source no absolutely and, and and to your point too about just you know interviewing the people who are affiliated with um, very biased organizations. I mean, a lot of these studies, I mean, there was, there was a recent Netflix uh, documentary about twins and eating vegan or not and whether that was better for you. And that was mm. linked to a study mm. that was also, uh, you know, conducted by someone who has a, like has ties to, you know, vegan stuff and their organizations that are funding vegan research. Right. Someone, you know, one of the people involved in a, in a recent thing that we were talking about on the other podcast, I just started with Griff better for y'all. 
uh, has a vegan cookbook and they're mm. advocating for, you know, less meat and less protein and less, less this and that. It's like, right. come on guys. Like yeah. there are very clear correlations between people who have interest in things and pushing science. That's just very suspect at best. Right. Well, I'm also reminded you made the point of, you have a woman doing the interviewing here talking about men's issues. I'm reminded of back in the day, back in the Jordan Peterson movement, like one of his most viral interviews was with like the editor in chief at GQ magazine, which is uh, a men's magazine. And yeah. it was a woman. Yeah. And she's sitting here like criticizing him for being a uh, misogynist, misogynist <laughs> right. and all these things. That's where right? the uh, forced monogamy that, right? BS came out. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah well, yeah. And, and it's just similar with cigar here. He's making the uh, sager sager, um, yeah. not cigar. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing you smoke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, sager. He's, he's making the, the point of just like showcasing, like you have these, all these kind of men's movements, like gamer gay, and all these things and they can't the nofap and all these areas is like you have men segmenting into these areas right now because they're not getting something in society like they're right. trying to find something to kind of cling on to because they're feeling nihilistic and meaningless and in, in some and maybe this will help me maybe this will help me you know and they're, they're looking for gurus everywhere right when it's also a way to think about it like it's a it's a bottom-up organization of people right like like people are finding each other and finding something and be like hey that fits with something with me right you know somebody in your life who is probably way too much of a shut-in, who probably smokes too much, masturbates too much, and isn't getting their life together, right? And you say that, you know, some of those guys are finding each other on the internet and saying, getting some self-motivation to change. That's a good thing. And then to have this come out and be like, oh, actually, actually, and we don't have to get into it, but Crystal, the other person down here, she just completely flubs the her criticism of the whole thing, basically saying there's obviously no connection between masturbation and pornography. I don't know what you're talking about. And that this predatory to men to tell them not to masturbate or, or watch porn. When it's just like... Because it's going to enhance anxiety and things like because, that. Yeah, they, because yeah. one of the guys said, I, I tried to do it and then I felt guilty about doing it when I would fail. And it's like, you don't... Like, that's the point. The point is to is to struggle. Like The goal is not to resist all struggle in fact, that's the probably the biggest deficit for most men in their life is a lack of something to struggle against, a meaningful burden for them to pick up and actually push against, right? That is actually what people are looking for. And that's one of the reasons why people pick up causes, yeah. whether it's an environmental cause or, a, you know, the causes that I pick up or whatever, whatever cause you that I'm, I'm trying to speak universally here, Sure, whatever that is, people have to have something to actually advance in the world that gives them meaning. And for some dudes, it's like, I, I can't pick up some big abstract cause. I just need to get my shit together. And if this group is trying to help men do that, I don't, it is so repulsive to me to have a hit job from my government-funded media outlet to say, no, you can't. And in fact, that makes me very suspicious about whatever incentives are in place to create that sort of situation. The incentives, and you know this as well as anybody, are obvious. If, you, if, if your motivation is to continue your own existence, the state, right? You want to make people dependent upon you. The last thing you want is critical thinking, independent, self-sustaining, strong mm. individuals. Mm. You want weak people who rely on you for their very existence. Mm. And this is just an extension of that, mm. in my opinion. Maybe that's it. So the okay, what's this leftist? So I came, thing? I came across this over the week, and so you have <laughs> six point two million views. By the way, here. Um, I, I saw this getting passed around. It ended up in my circles. Um, yeah, I don't know who this is. Some lefty. 
Um, if you're, if you're a leftist, you need to be working out four to five times a, a week, learning self-defense along with organizing with neighbors and in your local community for defense, food sovereignty and community defense. There's no excuse not to do something to strengthen your body daily. Um, uh, the time for nihilism, self-pity and excuses are over. We're living in a fascist country, whichever country you're living in, in the West, our vulnerable neighbors and people of the global South example, Palestine, Palestine. need us to step up. And it, it goes into this whole thing of like, basically it's a lefty saying that leftists need to stop being super nihilistic and do something with their lives and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And the comments under it is where things got kind of wild (laughs) where everybody is like, this is ableist. (laughs) Some people are poking jokes like Nick Carter. Here's poking already five days a week. Yeah. You know, work out five days a week. Oh, work out. Yeah. Okay. It it turned into this big thing. It turned out into this big hubbub where people are complaining because of how ableist it is. And like, (laughs) like it's sort of like the gym goers are are alt right people and Mm. all this stuff so you have this weird dividing line that exists of like the people that want to actualize things in their life like get money get stronger whatever it might be and then you have the people that are like nihilistic about their lives and there's like a Mm. clear differential point that seems to exist there culturally speaking what's the game theory Um, of it right like if you are in a battle of any sort cognitive ideological physical otherwise against an opponent do you want to put yourself in an advantageous position to win that battle or do you not? Mm-hmm. Well, this is the, this is the Nietzschean uh, master slave Nietzsche boy, a <laughs> <laughs> master slave dynamic of, of um, the, the master morality is using what is useful and dispensing that what is not useful. And the slave morality is over moralizing everything and falling too deeply into abstractions because, and over kind of over rationalizing every, everything and getting trapped in that and being, and then being stuck in nihilism as your tendency. And I think that this is like a very clear dynamic of that right here being played out. Um, Interesting with this lady is that she has all the main signatures for like a progressive, right? Mm -hmm. She's a petty bitch for a better world free palestine anti-colonialism yeah pro everybody having nice things no what's that sex pests i don't know what that is i don't know what that is no cults (laughs) and then lastly no liberalism but because these people are fighting neoliberalism that's what they're concerned okay got it all right that's this branch of leftism right got it okay so she's pretty radical uh and then it is that is so sad right because like she's she got ratioed man Yeah, I I just I I found it just it tied in with this. I I think that we're seeing more of these types of things, right? Uh, Interesting. I mean, I well, maybe I'm biased. I don't know, Uh, but I think she's right. I think so too, dude. If you think (laughs) if you think that Nazis run the government, yeah, you better get your shit together. (laughs) If you think you're being under the gun like that, I mean, oh my goodness, why? It's only a matter of time until a person like that who may have like uh, you know what seem like fairly opposite views from the alt-right archetype of someone who works out all the time, whatever sure. realizes that actually like you have a lot more in common <laughs> with the alt-right person <laughs> than you think. Yeah. And that yes, we're all going to be better off if more people like that are self-sufficient and prepared and not turning into crazed, afraid, mm. defenseless, angry and and unpredictable people in the event of some sort of black swan that necessitates everyone be a little bit more uh self-sufficient mm. right we're all going to be better off if if everyone is just well, a little it, bit more prepared for that. i think it's generally healthier for people that that in in a situation where you feel helpless to take on something that you can change i think that's like the best advice that jordan peterson gave that really helped people was just that idea that hey you can't you can't change you got a, a job you don't like but you can't work out you can eat better 
and you can like make your bed or whatever, like those sorts of things, like starting there and changing the things in your domain you're actually capable of changing is a good place to start at any moment in, in, in terms of power. And that might change your outlook on life and make you realize that you don't have to be defined by a, I don't have enough orientation to reality. Right. Instead, you can be orientated by abundance right. and orientated by all the possibilities that are out there that you can generate through action rather than just complaining on the internet. Totally. Uh, I, I just had this, I just rem- remembered something. I had this big Taoist kick when I was like 19 or 20, like read the Tao Te Ching. Taoism is like a philosophy philosophy that comes out of China, kind of like Buddhist adjacent, that type of stuff. And uh, just kind of stemming into the no fat movement of how Taoist, the no fat movement kind of is, huh. is the Taoists have this principle about like they, they, they over like over left brain it. They like have this equation of how often a man should ejaculate based huh. off of their age. And they try to like, so like they, they have like this whole thing. I just remember, I remembered reading that when I was wow. <laughs> reading through Taoism it, and it's basically like, you should, you should only go like this. You should go this long and then you should go this long and then this long. They have like a whole principle and equation really thought for about it. it. Yeah. But in, um, and one of the things is like the, I, wow. <laughs> one of the, wow. <laughs> One of the things that, that the science has exactly how much you should or shouldn't is absolutely absurd. And after COVID, no one should be listen, listening to some reporter who obviously doesn't give a shit about this topic or care about a guy who's struggling with this and instead just operating on this kind of basis that obviously this this reporter was. So shame on her. And uh, if you need help, get some help. Well, well a, lot yes. of, a lot of thing for men, I think a lot of problems men have right now is just they don't have a, a focus on something like they're a lot of it. A lot of poor incentives are around them and they're tracking a lot of those short term gratifications, especially in their 20s when they have all this energy and they should be putting it towards something like like start a business, learn how to make money, et cetera. Like those things are like the things that men should be really focused on in their 20s. And and then the fruit will come from it probably as you hit your thirties and and so on. Like I, like I'm 28 right now and I'm starting to realize the fruit of my money accumulation is starting to kind of become fruitful now. Like mm-hmm. as I haven't even hit 30 yet and it's just like, Oh, I'm really glad I spent a lot of time focusing how to make money. Like that is a very important thing to, but, and I look at it so many people around me that just don't have any of that, like at my age, um, like it's, it's shocking to mm-hmm. me. Um, and it, it's just like where they spent their time and focus throughout their entire twenties just seems like such a waste of time to me. Well, a lot of uh, people didn't have, uh, maybe as good of uh, direction mentors, you know, people in, influencing their lives positively to say, Hey, pay attention to this. Cause you're gonna, you're gonna need to have it down the road. Or those voices just weren't as loud as the, the cultural din of, spend more time trying to get likes on your latest photo on Instagram or whatever, which might be important depending on what you're doing, right? Like social media is important depending on like social media is important for us. Right. Cause we're trying to grow a thing, but there's kind of like good use of social media versus bad use of social media. I was actually, I was having a conversation with, um, a, a kid that I know in the crypto space, he's 14 years old. I was having a back and forth with him on Twitter. Um, dude has six figures, and he, and he was talking, uh, I was talking back and forth with him. And he's just like, he was like, I, I said to him, it's, it's awesome. It like, maybe the next generation is actually pretty good. Cause like, I'm looking at him and it's, and he's crushing it. And then he's like, oh man, he first, he doesn't tell his, 
n- nobody around him knows that he's like so good in crypto kind mm. of a thing. And he's just like, all of my friends, they're just like TikTok brain. And I was just like, okay, well, well maybe it's maybe it's not so good. <laughs> but he's just like, right. but as they're buying things off of TikTok ads, I'm buying TikTok ads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's that's the mentality that you need to have. Right. Is he is he's selling things with TikTok versus his friends all around him that are buying the new shoe that is on TikTok, right? Right. It's the same um, thing with with like leverage with debt, right? Like there's yes. a, a good way and a bad way to use debt. You use the bad way is to use debt to buy a thing that doesn't make you any money. The good way is to use debt to buy a thing that cash flows and mm-hmm. creates Absolutely. more wealth. Well, and it might you might find yourself if you're investing and if you're taking risks and doing things, you might find yourself stressed out and maybe anxious. <gasps> and that's the last thing you want oh, if no. you're a crystal or if you're this author here who says, well, one of the big problems here is if you resist this urge to waste your time watching pornography, you could you could have spent your time being happy rather than being stressed out and anxious. We, we overemphasize, especially for men, we overemphasize um, anxiety and depression. Like they shouldn't be things that are factored into your life. You should fight past them. Like <laughs> I'm going to go full Andrew Tate on that. Like <laughs> stop it. Stop worrying about Don't your depression. About stop, stop worrying about your anxiety levels. Like just get yourself out of it. Whatever way you need to get out of it. And short-term gratification is not the way to do that. Like set yourself up into the point where your serotonin levels are high enough where you don't have to worry about being anxious all the time. <laughs> It's just one of those things. It's like how to get there is not going to be by doing the low effort thing that costs nothing. Yes. That that stimulates your dopamine receptors. It's going to be the way out is going to be probably something that's even worse, right? In order to get to heaven, you got to go through hell, right? So I, I'll tell you a little personal story here because I what I don't want to do is get the reception that it's just like a screw you and pick yourself up by your bootstraps sort of story altogether, that there's, there's more uh, identification that I have with somebody like that. There was a time in my life where I woke up every morning with a sense of just doom, just a sense of just terrible ceiling. When I, when I heard Jordan Peterson actually articulate something similar to this at one point, I was like, oh man, I, yeah, I know that. And uh, I would, it was after my daughter was born and I was out of shape and I was working all the time and I was working mostly to avoid confronting the pain that I went through when my daughter was born because we spent you know about four months at Seattle Children's Hospital living there um, with a lot of like watching small children suffer. Uh, at the hospital and I got out of that place by seeing a picture of myself in which I was like, I got fat and realizing that and then doing something about it, hitting the gym, changing my diet and having a lot. And I mean, an order of magnitude than you would ever anticipate of discussions with my wife to try to work out our problems over many years to get there. Uh, and it was because you have a confrontation with suffering and terribleness. You got to do something. It has to change you or it's going to crush you. And it's what I was doing. It was crushing me, but I was just ignoring it and just continuing on as if nothing had happened. Uh, and so you have to let it change you. That's going to be a transformation that's going to come out either way. And if you don't like confront that at some point, you're going to get there. So if you're in that similar place and you can't, and you can't seem to change anything, you're going to have to change something if you're going to change, right? You got, and you got to pick something to tackle, do it. And then, and then you got to get out there and actually try to do it, like make it happen in the real world. Not just theoretically, not just philosophically. Now with your brain, this is going to be an action thing. Uh, Cause I see too, too many guys who just, who just try to outthink the problem rather than outdoing something with yeah. the problem. Yeah. I think that's, it's a really powerful anecdote. And I know that that resonates with, with more people than, we probably even care to know because everyone's gone through hard things. And, you know, as like Joe Rogan says, the hardest thing you've ever done is the hardest thing you've ever done. That's the max of your scale. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but the problem I see with this with the space around a lot of this stuff right now, the health and wellness, the manosphere, like all these sort of adjacent overlapping areas, is that there's sort of this overwhelm. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the Andrew Huberman memes are are pretty fierce around this, where it's like. I wake up at 4 a.m. and I do this and that and like and I have three yeah. days in the span of one day and like the, the grind, the hustle culture and all oh, this yeah. stuff. It's like, just fuck all that, man. Just like yeah. put all that to the side. Like literally, if if all you've done in the last day is sit on your couch and play video games or whatever your thing is that gets you that cheap dopamine hit, yeah. put your shoes on and go for a walk around your condo, mm. right? Just do that one thing or like drive to the gym and like, you know, you've, you've heard that thing. Like just go to the gym, walk in the front door and walk out whatever it is to just like get into a different loop, just create a different habit, something. It doesn't have to be significant. Just like the tiniest little change can lead to the next tiniest little change. Focus on the one thing. Yeah. Have habits that make you better at the things that you're trying to accomplish, right? Like maybe it's some sort of knowledge accumulation, like listening, like listening to audiobooks or something that's going to help you get better at the thing that you're trying to do. Yeah. Maybe it's, yeah. Trying to get stronger, figure out some sort of regimen, dieting, whatever. Like there's a lot of different things that you can work towards. Um, but, and, and maybe use those things that give you dopamine kicks, use those as a reward system sure. or something like that. Right. right? Yeah. Right. Um, use it to your advantage. Yeah. Sure. So I want to cap it out with uh, guy motivation versus girl motivation. Cause this is it perfectly articulates the reason why this is so messed up is because you have this this woman writing this article about NoFap who obviously understands nothing about the problems of men, uh, you know, giving a, uh, a, a girl motivations type message to men as if it's going to help. And worth the saying, great Ryan Long. Yeah, Ryan Long is, <laughs> is a sketch. For we need him. to get this guy. We don't have show. to do the whole thing too. We just do a little bit of it. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the Crush Life channel. Welcome to you, are enough. Why the f*** are you not a Jack CEO billionaire professional athlete right now? Think about it. Why the f*** not? Why are you not on the moon? You are perfect. And if they can't see that, that's their problem. 4 a.m.? I've been at the gym twice. I'm f***ing yoked. You need to take time for yourself. Read a nice book. Take a bath. Ice bath. Speed read 12 books. Take what's yours. There is absolutely nothing wrong with looking like a pear. Pears are delicious. Cellulite is braille for people who need to see who you really are. Miles, I grab you and shake you. I say, stop being chubby. My sister's there crying. Says, stop shaking my baby. That's why I've cut them both off. I don't associate with losers. Some days you sleep till one and you can't get out of bed and that's called being human. I chopped up my bed with an ax to send a message to the universe that my dreams happen in real life, bitch. You fucking poor bitch. You fat poor bitch. Once you've spent the 37 years to heal, only then are you ready for adventure. I don't take days off. I've got my assistant attending my mother's funeral as we speak. She's in the merch table setup. Selling the number Janice mugs. You see loss, I see an opportunity. My second cousin's esthetician got in a fender bender and I had to put my life on hold for four months to be there for her. Engagement, interface, impressions, digital marketing, all words that you should be using daily. Love, compassion, understanding, self-care, astrological signs. No excuses. Mental health days should be legally mandated. Mental health days? How about I'm mental about health and not gay? If it takes nine years for you to grieve, your boss needs to accept that that's okay. You know what happens when you're sick and weak in the animal kingdom? They leave you to die. Is a line my bitch stepmother asked me to stop saying at my dad's bone cancer ward. (laughs) 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 Yep, that's it. And it goes on for another five minutes. It's so great. (laughs) Incredible. Wow. Well, on that note, guys, it's been a very good episode. Thanks so much, David Rand, the ever-inspirational bald eagle of liberty. (laughs) Couldn't do without you. Kyle Mack, Pudgy Penguin, Connoisseur. 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 <laughs> More to come on that stuff, too. The, the penguins are maturing. 
as you alluded to. Yeah, things yeah, are maturing. Just, we just we just crossed. Yeah, yeah. We just we crossed some milestones in the last well, week. It's pretty good. We'll have some more on that. Bennett on the ones and twos. Thank you, sir. I'm Joe Sheehan. We appreciate you watching Human Reaction. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to Human Reaction. Help us fight internet censorship by liking, commenting, subscribing, following, and sharing the show with your friends. To find us around the internet, visit linktree.com slash human reaction pod. And remember, using your sidewalks to get to work is a higher order use than using it to poop on. Because going to work incurs benefits on everybody because you provide a service You're for your community. This nice while, little sidewalk while there po- for you. <laughs> while pooping on the sidewalk incurs a deficit. A cost. A cost. A deficit. Deficit. A deficit. Deficit. <laughs>